For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. It's probably not 100%, but I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm able to lose weight and exercise. There was a time, I will tell you it all, that when I, I couldn't even lift my hand to dry my hair, and I'm sure there's someone out there that's having that problem, don't give up. It will get better because now I can walk eight miles a day, sometimes ten. It just depends. And uh, it's, it's a good thing. Well, I always remember uh, your husband, Bob, telling me, you know, they tried to kill her thyroid. Do you really think you can do anything to help her because the medicine she's on is no longer doing anything? you remember that? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the medication, um, I'm not going to name names, but uh, I had gone to a, a well-known clinic, and they did help me for a little while, but my dosage of, of I was on, uh, uh, what's the uh, chemical, Synthroid for years, uh, that that's where it didn't work anymore, and then I got into this other um, supposedly natural hormone that helped for a while, but the dosages eventually got so high they stopped working, and that's when I found Doc, and and he turned it around. So, but yes, Bob was worried. You know, he he's he was wanting help too. He went with me to every visit. And if I remember correctly, didn't you tell me that they tried to kill your thyroid with radiation many years before I met you? Oh, yeah. When I first found out I had a problem, I didn't know I was really that sick. I thought I was recovering from the sinus infection, I remember, and it wouldn't go away. So I went to my my GP, and when he started feeling around on my neck right away, he noticed I had a gorder. Well, I never saw it. Uh, he sent me immediately, immediately down to the radiation department, our nuclear medicine department in Memorial City Mall, the, the hospital. They immediately put me on beta blockers. My heart rate was so fast. It was incredibly fast. Um, I was hot all the time. I had started, get, I, at the time when this all happened, I was bodybuilding and I was in really, really good shape, but I got to where I couldn't hardly get out of bed and it was because I had hypothyroidism and I didn't know it. But as soon as they put me on the beta blockers and they, they got me, of course, went to the hospital. They did an X-ray of my thyroid gland. I had to take this radioactive pill so they could run the scan. And then they then I had to take another radioactive iodine pill supposedly to kill the thyroid. And uh, thank God they didn't kill it completely. And uh, it was just a nightmare, absolute nightmare. I was scared to death. I was young. I was sick as a dog. And it just got worse, and I had to quit exercising, gained a bunch of weight, and uh, it was terrible for years. Well, I was telling uh, a a patient recently who was very concerned. He just quit all of his medicine, and he's going through a rough time. I said, I've gotten phone calls from people like you that, you know, hey, I can't even raise my hairbrush. Uh, I can't brush (laughs) my teeth. And and you're horrified, and you're, you're in pain. And for the doctor, it's very difficult because you wish you had a magic wand to just cure that. But right. you were a great patient. You hung in there, and you didn't give up, and uh, it was nice to see the change. 
Oh, it's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Like I said, I it, it took a while. I, and I don't remember exactly how long it took. Maybe, was it about six months, I think? Yeah, I would say four to, six, four to six months. It was probably four months before you looked at me like you actually thought I was going to not kill you. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Now, now it's it's uh, it's incredible the difference. Now, you know, you you don't want to say that these Western doctors don't know what they're talking about, but but you got to know the drug companies they want you to take those drugs, and it, it's not they don't always work. I'm well, they that. only cover up, and what was happening to you when I met you. Uh, is you said, you know, for a while everything made me feel better. But what was happening was you had painted over the rust with the pharmaceuticals. So you were getting by thinking you were feeling better. And when you quit that stuff is when you find out how sick you are. And that's what we're running into with some of these other patients. And that's why I figured your story was a good one because when I met you, nobody would have believed you could have walked eight miles in a year. And now you do. Oh, I know. No, I think yeah, I, was in I a think bad you've walked eight to ten you. miles in a single day, which just blows my mind. Oh, and and another, you know, what what got me in to see you, what the incredible story uh, about this whole thing and how we met is, I had a, an ulcer, and I was in pain. I mean, it would take me to the floor. And Bob actually drove by your your office and asked if you had anything that would help me, and it was the Ocrepestin. And uh, that's what got me in your office to begin with, was that. And that's what started that whole chain of events. But, yeah, I was scared to death to get off of all those meds because the doctors told me you will have to take these for the rest of your life or you will die. Well, that's scary because you think, okay, he's a doctor. He knows what he's talking about. But they weren't working anymore. So I was scared then, too, because, okay, how much is this, of this am I going to have to take for the rest of my life? But now, well, yeah, and, and in their defense, a lot of these guys, that's what they're taught, so they don't know any better. And right. they have a very tough patient protocol. If they don't follow the license guidelines that are tied to the pharmaceutical companies, um, they, they get in all kinds of trouble. Unfortunately yeah. for people like you, they were killing you, and exactly. I don't even know if they realized it. Well, you know, it's it's sad, but but the uh, the system is really screwed up now. You know, with with the way things are going now, it's really bad. I feel really bad for these. Look like for you, Doc, because there. I feel like the government eventually is going to shut all of you guys down. Hopefully not, but you know. And then what do we do? The ones that really want to be healed. Well, I think as long as there's people like you out there that aren't afraid to tell their story more and more people are going to hear that and they're going to stand up and they're not going to put up with being lied to right right now we're inundated with commercials and if you watch all these tv commercials about medicine uh the beginning of every commercial you think you're you're deficient in whatever they're offering and then conveniently at the end of the commercial they mention all the side effects but then they hope by then you've not paid attention so I, i think people like you are going to make a difference I hope so, because one of the things that I've learned, well, I've learned a lot of things from you, but one of the most important things that I've learned from you in this whole process is, is to, to know my own body. When you go to a 
doctor about a thyroid problem or high blood pressure, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to test their thyroid. They're going to take your blood pressure. Well, they're taught of a generalized, what they consider normal range of whatever your problem is. Well, not everybody falls with it. Not everybody's the same. Everybody's different. Not one diet will work the exact same for two or three people. So that's a problem, a big problem that I see with Western medicine. When you do it your way, when I went into your office, you didn't take my blood pressure. You didn't draw blood and run $5,000 worth of blood tests. We, we did it slowly, and yes, it was rough, but the end result is a very healthy person that feels great now. Well, yeah, and, and that's why when you came to my office, I remind people all the time, if you listen to the patients, they make you look smart because you exactly. knew your body better than I did. And I had no yeah. clue on all the inner feelings that you were dealing with. But if I sat and listened, I sure got a good education and you helped me help you, which is what we're supposed to be doing. That's right. Yep. You know, and now go, when I'm... <clears throat> go ahead. I'm go on. What I was going to say is now when I have a problem, if I'm feeling a certain way, I kind of know now what I need. Or or all I have to do is tell you, okay, Doc, I'm experiencing this. And you say, okay, well, I've got several things. Let's try this and see how you feel. Right. And the reason we do it that way is, like you said, you brought up a beautiful point. Everybody is different. Yes. Some, some patients, you can give one thing. And to give you a perfect example, I think you and I have talked about this before. Uh, I've had some patients, great, big, burly guys that wanted some help with stress and anxiety, and I would try something, and what this little skinny girl didn't phase her might make my great, big, giant guy woozy and feel like, wow, that's perfect for me. So everybody is different, and if you don't listen to them, uh, you you end up not helping, and you brought up a good point. In most of these other offices, it's blood work and blood pressure because they know usually the blood pressure is high in their office, and they can talk you into blood pressure medicines, and they can also uh, scare you in the, the blood work that you need this and you need that, and they love to do the thyroid tests like you brought up, and it's exactly. never going to be in the guidelines they choose, so they put you on a medicine like they did you. Right. You know, just for an example, my mother uh, has a little bit of high cholesterol, but it runs in my family. Well, right away, her doctor put her on a statin drug, and it about killed her. She got to where she could not get out of bed. It made her so tired and lethargic and everything else. And the minute she quit taking it, she weaned herself off of it. She felt like a normal human being again. I firmly believe that You know, like we were just talking about, everybody's different. I think some people's cholesterol runs higher than others. Some maybe run lower than others. Um, I think some people's blood sugar runs a little higher than than other people and some lower. You don't automatically need to put people on all these medications to lower or raise things up. A lot of these things can also be, like diabetes, for instance, I think a lot if not all people with diabetes, it can be totally controlled with diet and supplements. Well, yeah, you're exactly right. And the problem with the cholesterol thing is cholesterol is very important. 
and no two people have the same cholesterol. But they came right. up with these charts and numbers so they could sell medicines. And yes. when they put you on a statin, like your poor mom, well, they're shutting down the liver, and the liver makes 80% of that cholesterol, and it also feeds the brain. The brain is the biggest customer of cholesterol, plus all your hormones, and this is one of the things we addressed with you, was the adrenals and thyroid, which balances the hormones and your metabolism and gives you that energy so you can walk eight miles. And mm-hmm. if you shut down the cholesterol, you can't make the hormones. You can't make vitamin right. D when the sun shines on your skin. So your poor mom was going through hell, medically induced, because she listened to them and they were trying to kill her, not thinking that, wow, you know, we're putting her on something that we shouldn't be doing because that's what they're taught. Right. And she still doesn't believe in what I'm doing totally, you know, all the natural organic stuff. But she does know and she realized through her own experience that the drugs are not always the way to go either. So that's a good thing. Yeah, for some reason, I thought her watching you would make her uh, see that light bulb. But for some reason, it's been a little slower process. But everybody that I know that knows you is amazed on what happened, especially your husband, Bob, because he was very concerned. And he even called me a few times in those early days because you couldn't you couldn't do things, and he was really scared, and I don't blame him for being. But what yeah, I always tell people was. is you should be very afraid of what those medications were doing all this time, because when they stop, that's when we see what was wrong. And I was so proud of you because it was scary. You'd been covering everything up for a long, long time. I think you told me like 18 years. And yeah. to stop that made quitting cigarette smoke look like a Mary Poppins movie. And uh, you went through <laughs> yeah. some really rough times, but you hung in there. I was very proud of you. I did. Thank you so much. But, you know, I couldn't have done it without you. But, but you know, you didn't – it wasn't like you pushed me into it. You you left the decision up to me, but it was the way you said it. I, I recommend that you throw all these in the on the trash. And when I came home that night and I told Bob, my husband, I said, you know, I'm scared to death to do this, but I've got to do something. And I did it, and I'm so glad I did. I'll never, t- I'll never go back. It's funny because we, when we sit here and watch TV at night, about every other commercial is a new drug that's out. There's a new name, and we just get so tickled when they immediately start talking about the drug and all the side effects from this drug, you know, you're going to, you 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 may have clear skin in your coffin, you know. <laughs> well, did you uh, did you notice them as much before you got well as you do now? No. Nope. Because I think they count on that. I, I and you notice they've always got um, the commercial covered with some model or models trying to distract you while they're reading off the bad stuff. And uh, yeah. so many people think that they are deficient in those medications. And Hesh on the show right before me was talking about how they've almost convinced people that these medications are nutrients. And that's that should be criminal. It's scary as can be that a lot it of should. people really believe they need those medicines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they entice you. They, they get you hook, line, and sinker, and they, put, they reel you in. 
you got to have this. Oh my gosh. And, uh, a lot, I think, and, but then you've got to take another drug to counteract the side effects of that drug. And then there's another drug that they'll offer to, to counteract the side effects of that drug. So before you know it, my poor grandmother is on like 15 different medications because that's what they've done to her. She's from the old school. She's not ready to let go of her medications and, and try the natural way. She's nine, she'll be 93 this year, but still, she could probably live to be 115 and be healthy if she wasn't on all the medications she's on. Well, yeah, and, and wouldn't you agree that they're more coherent and alive and that they're actually living their life when they get older if you don't see them on all the medications? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I've got a good friend right now that, believe it or not, her husband has Asperger's and he has some other problems, and he's on maybe 15 or 20 different medications. And the funny thing is, is we, we recently had a flood here, you know, in, in Texas, and they were, they were trapped in their house for a week. They couldn't get off their property for an entire week. And he ran out of some of his medications. It got better because he wasn't on those medications. Yeah, perfect, perfect thing, Tammy, because I tell people all the time, uh, you know, they think that you're trying to sell them stuff, and I say, no, I'm not in sales, I'm in healthcare, and I carry products so you don't buy junk, but I said, if you want to get better, just stop taking the crap you're taking, and you're going right. to see that that's killing you. Yep. Yep, one of the things I loved the most when we walked into your office was that fact right there. You didn't walk into your office and see this beautiful, elaborate, high overhead office. It was warm and inviting. Everything you had in your office was organic and natural. You didn't push one thing on me. You you, had, you recommended a few supplements for me, and I took them. I'm still on them today. Ten years later, still on them. They work. And well, and like I told you and Bob back then, uh, look around, and if your doctor doesn't practice what he preaches, you should get up and run out of there very fast. Absolutely. Yep. You're right. And and also, uh, now that you have started your health regimen and you do all the walking uh, and you're and you're eating different. Everything is back to probably how you were before they ever put you on a medicine. Probably. You know, it's funny. I feel better now than I did before my thyroid problem. I'm eating healthier. I'm exercising not more, but better, safer. Uh, I'm eating better. Uh, I feel like I'm getting the right nutrients now because of the supplements that I choose to take. Regularly, I alternate some. If I feel like I've got a deficiency in, in an area, I'll take a supplement for that, and then I'll alternate into something else. I, I'm real big on immune boosters. Hey, Tammy, we we're getting ready to go to we're going to go to a commercial break. So hold that thought okay. and hang in there, and okay. we'll be right back in just a couple minutes. Okay.
I like to talk for a couple minutes about what I call Docslist. And these people are my friends, but more important than that, they're people that I trust and respect. I know they'll take good care of you like they always have me. First is Steve O'Brien of Quality Computers. And whatever your computer needs, from home to office, IT, intercoms, PA systems, uh, monitoring, he'll take care of you. 830-998-4381. He's in the Fredericksburg, Giuseppe County area. But many things he can do online where you don't even have to take the computer to him. And he works all over the place. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. I would like to tell you about the only truly natural dog and cat food I have found anywhere. Most all companies add a synthetic vitamin mineral pack to their dry or kibble food. Nature's logic is different. With all natural ingredients and nothing man-made added, their owner, Scott Freeman, worked for another pet food company but decided he wanted to do things right. So he started Nature's Logic. You can check them out at natureslogic.com. You will find online and local stores where you can find their products. I spent a lot of time trying to find an all-natural pet food, and Nature's Logic was the only one out there. Give your pets the best and check out naturelogic.com. Your pets will be glad you did. They also have many other natural pet products to try. wonderful guest and a good friend and a real live patient, Tammy Morrow, on the line with us. Uh, Tammy, one of the things I yeah. always forgot to ask you was when you first came to see me, had you even knew what kind of a doctor I was and that I did natural health care and 
and family practice and those kind of things, or did you just know about the chiropractic stuff? I had no idea. We saw your sign. Uh, I drove by your sign by your office every day, and and when you when I saw the natural, uh, pathic healing part of it, I thought you know I've got to go in there because obviously what I'm doing is not working, and we just never did never did go in, and and then when I had that attack that day and with my my uh, ulcer, that's when we got in there, and I'm so glad, so glad. So now, what advice would you give, because I have a few patients that are listening tonight because I told them you'd be on the air, who I have never had the pleasure of meeting in person, but I am treating them, you know, just like we did with you, and some of them are going through some very, very rough, scary times. Uh, They haven't met me. Uh, I'm sure there's people in some of those families that think I got a degree from which doctor you. Um, I remember a buddy of mine when I was in uh, doing medical school, he used to ask me, did I get my GED yet? So uh, what kind of advice can you give to some of these patients that are out there who are scared? They're where you were a long time ago. Uh, take the floor and just kind of tell them from your story and, you know, what anything you can tell them that will help them through this since they're a long way from us? Well, um, unfortunately, being a long way, it's, it's obviously not feasible to see you in person. But what I can say is because of what Doc Krupa does and what he's done for me, I'm a living patient. I'm a living testimony. I've been seeing him for 10 years. Um don't give up, and you don't have to see him in person to get well. He knows what he's talking about. He doesn't have to run a lot of tests. He doesn't have to do blood tests and see you. You tell him how you're feeling, and he can help you that way. And it might take several months, but if you stick with it, he, it will work, and you will feel better. What was, was probably the, the scariest thing for you in the beginning when, when I told you if it was up to me, I'd throw all that crap in the trash? Well, it was scary for me because I had been told, you know, brainwashed more or less from the very moment I got sick that I would have to be on these medications for the rest of my life or it would eventually kill me. Uh, you know, and I'm always thinking, oh, my gosh, what would have happened if I were to get stranded somewhere and I couldn't get my medication or what are that, what would I do? And I'm thinking, I will, I'm not going to be able to survive if I can't get this medication. What happens if all of a sudden these drug companies go out of business and I can't get my medication? You know, having to be dependent on something for your life is a very scary thing. And when I found out that that's not the truth and that I can help my body one thing, I don't want to go off onto a, a Bible thumping or, or anything, but I'm a very spiritual person, and God made our bodies to heal itself. And I honestly believe that it can do that. Sometimes it might need some help with supplements, but with the right attitude is another good thing. You've got to be positive. You've got to know you're going to get well, and you will. But throw the medications away and try it. You will not. You will not regret it. You brought up a great thing. I I always tell people uh, that they're probably on their hands and knees praying to God for this miracle medication, and He's probably looking down, saying, "Everything you ever needed has been there since the beginning of time, but you're That's going right. to the pharmacy. You're not taking the things of the earth that I gave you." 
That's right. You know, I believe that God blessed doctors with the knowledge to help people, but what they've done with that knowledge is they've created a money machine with the medication. Instead of finding the natural things out there that can heal people, instead of doing the research and learning about what God gave us on the planet to heal us, instead of, you know, making supplements people can take out of the natural grown elements, they've created these chemicals, and it's just created this powerful money machine. Uh, if anybody has any questions for our guest, Tammy Morrow, uh, the phone number for calling in is 1-800-932-1980. We'd love to have your calls. Uh, Tammy, also, uh, you've changed and you do a lot of wonderful natural things for your pets, and they seem to have responded pretty well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've got natural flea uh, things that I've made and, and weed killers, too, and and you know, just I don't we don't use any pesticides. I use um, if I've got a, a mosquitoes are my big problem. So what I found is if I if you and that mosquitoes go by how you smell. They you know some people they go after some people they don't. If you take garlic, a natural good organic garlic, they're probably not going to want to bite you <laughs> because you're not going to taste very good or smell very good probably. But stuff like that helps. And the same with the pets. If you feed your pets garlic or um, I, I think you told me of another other few things that they can take that helps with that with fleas as well. Well, and, and you also don't put any synthetic fertilizers or any kind of stuff in your yard. So no, not your at all. Pets, when your pets play, they're not playing in, in bad stuff. No. Um, I drink filtered water through um, a filtered water machine that I purchased from you. We do that. Um, no fluoride toothpaste. That's bad. Uh, you know, unfortunately, there's fluoride in our water. That's not a good thing. I don't use, I use all natural organic shampoos and soaps. Uh, deodorant, I don't use the deodorant with aluminum. Um, I've done everything I can to help myself, and, and I really feel that these things are important. You know, you just got to do your homework, do a little research uh, as well, and, and I think people will find comfort in that, knowing there's a lot of people out there doing this, a lot more than you think, and that helps. Now, have you found that since we met uh, that a lot of the things you used to do you start researching and this changed, or did you just start picking up different things here and there? What what caused you to, like you said, all organic uh, different things and toothpaste and no insecticides? Were you doing that kind of stuff before? Or no, not, things as, not as much, not as much. Um, now, my husband has been doing the natural nutritional thing for years. He studied it for years, and he's always helped me along, telling me, you know, we really need to – buy toothpaste, no fluoride, and he he does a lot more research than I do on stuff sometimes, and he'll say, did you know that that uh, blah, blah, blah can do this to you, and blah, blah, so we need to quit eating that, and we need we need more magnesium in our body, and, and, and this sort of thing, but I really got into it more once I saw that the medications that I got off of and got on supplement, natural organic supplements and things were working, it made me want to, okay, I can do this in every aspect of my life, not just my hormones and thyroid. There's got to be an organic 
fix for everything, and there is. Leah, well, yeah, you've done some fabulous things, and ladies and gentlemen, if you saw her, uh, she is a picture of health. She walks enough miles that she's keeping some tennis shoe manufacturers working late nights to try to keep up. <laughs> orthotics, I think she's, yeah. <laughs> she's, she's wearing the leather off her tennis shoes. She walks more than I recommend, but if she loves it, and you should see her uh, when when she can't walk because of the weather or something, she's not the same. But when she gets out and does her exercise, she eats good. Uh, she does have a day of the week that she spoils herself and treats herself, but she's got great willpower. Uh, she, like I said, she's a picture of health, beautiful lady, wonderful personality. And when I met her, she just seemed like she was existing, and her poor husband was so horrified and worried about her. And I remember him asking me, you know, they killed her thyroid. Can you do anything? And I said, oh, I, it's a gland. We can we can do all kinds of things, and I think it'll come back. So judging from where you're at now, I think it came back. I think it has come back. Maybe not 100%, but, but it's back. I mean, I... I feel like I wouldn't be here if it wasn't. I wouldn't be able to get up and walk and do the things that I do now. I mean, I'm, I, I would, could barely walk from my car to the house when I was at my lowest point. Now I can get out and I can do my entire yard, clean my house, wash my car, bathe my dog, all in one day. And to me, that when I sit back after I've done all that, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I couldn't have done this before. I absolutely couldn't have. Would you please tell the story that you told me from our medical friend who wanted to test your blood and after they saw the results going by their standards could not believe you were that person? Oh, yeah. I, I have a friend in the medical field and she was worried about me and she wanted me to go in and, and have my thyroid panel run. And so I did. I agreed. I went in and had my panel run. And when she got the results back, she looked at me and she said, oh, my gosh, this is the worst panel I've ever seen. You should not even be sitting there. You should be so sick. You should be in the hospital. Now, that right there tells me that everybody's different. My, my panels might not be what the doctors consider the average or the norm, but here I am. I can do all these things, but yet my, my blood work shows I shouldn't be here at all. Not well, yeah, and, that's, and that was my point earlier, Tammy. And not that everybody's different, but they have guidelines putting everybody in that same box, and they have guidelines that aren't real so they can sell medication. And right. just like when I first met you, do you remember our story about the plastic forks and knives when you t when I told you you were taking Synthroid? Uh, remind, refresh my memory about the plastic forks. Well, well, I you said uh, I'm taking levothyroxine, which the trade name was Synthroid, and I explained that that stood for synthetic thyroid. And I said right. that's okay. like take that's like taking plastic forks and knives, and instead of eating with them on your picnic, you eat the plastic forks and knives. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, pretty much. Well, yeah. See, nobody thinks that way. Because the, I've had a lot of people, you sent somebody to me one day who had a list of 18 medications, and his belief was that he had to have them, and that's why he carried the list with him. 
because if something happened, he wanted people to know he needed those 18 medicines every day. And you right, tried, and unfortunately, your, he yeah, you tried your best now. to talk him into letting me help, and he never would. And I just I told did. him, if you ever get tired of that and you want to get better, just give me a call. Well, you know, unfortunately, there are some people that don't want to get better. Um, there, there are just some people out there, they, they would rather be in that soapbox. I don't understand that, but that's how they are. But if you really want to get well and get healthy, you got to get the chemicals out. They're just Band-Aids. So, so for the patient out there right now that's listened to pretty much of this show and uh, they've heard your story and, and they're maybe in the beginning stages because there's a couple of them that are listening tonight that are going through some rough times. Uh, yeah. What got you through those first few months when you probably thought I was crazy and trying to kill you? Uh, what what got you through that? Well, you know, a lot of prayer. Um, but one of the things that helped me, I think, mentally was I, I have to take back what I said earlier a little bit about throwing all my medications in the trash. There were two that I hung on to as a security blanket. For my own peace of mind, um, if you're if you're afraid and you don't want to just throw away all your medication, I would suggest take them and hide them somewhere. Don't take them, but just keep them as a as a like I said a safety blanket or whatever. It makes you feel better. Because I put my Synthroid up in the cabinet, and I knew it was there. It was a mental thing for me. I knew it was there if I just absolutely felt like I couldn't do it or couldn't make it. It's there if I need it. But I never looked back once I got over that hump. I was petrified when I got rid of all the other medications. And I thought, okay, we're going we're gonna to figure this out. It's going to work. I know it's going to work. you got to have a positive attitude. But the biggest thing is not to give up, to keep going, because you are going to hit rock bottom, especially if you've got a thyroid problem. Another problem, you may, it may not react as bad, but the thyroid, absolutely, I, I really barely could put one foot in front of the other, but it got better, and I never had to take those pills again. And when I finally threw them in the trash, it was such a release, and I felt absolutely free when I never had to take another medication again. Will you remember... I had mentioned that you don't even know how sick you are until you stop those medications. That's and true. I, yep, because when so, you start peeling the Band-Aids off, when you throw them in the trash and those Band-Aids start coming off, that's when you really see how sick you are. But then when you get down to your lowest point, you know, okay, this is it. I'm going to get better from here, but I'm not going to get better with meds. I'm going to get better. My body's going to heal itself. Well, and that's important because I was telling some of these other people and I wanted them to hear it from you because it's not the same me telling them something, but I wanted them to hear from you because we did have those phone calls that said, I can't lift my hairbrush. What do I do? We did have the phone calls that Bob said, she can't brush her teeth. I'm really worried. Uh, And you hung in there. So something told you that it was getting better and better little by little. You sensed it, you felt that something was going on. And, well, I and that's believed. what I wanted to I really to. believed. I believed I was going to get better. I really believed I am going to get better. 
and that helps. You got to have a positive attitude. There were days, I had good days and bad days. Uh, I would have days when I, of course, I have to work, and I had to work, and working was a real struggle because I had to drive myself to work. I had to get out of my car and walk into my office. I had to deal with people all day, which was the last thing in the world I wanted to do. But I had a lot of positive encouragement. Uh, one of the biggest encouragers I had, of course, was my husband Bob. He was, he was right. He did everything he could to help me. He did research for me. He told me, "You're doing the right thing. This is the right thing to do." You know, and he would call you and talk to you. And I had a lot of positive support that way. And I just kept trugging along and trugging along. And gradually, I could feel myself getting better. And I started walking, and I could walk to the end of the driveway, and that was it. And then I could walk down the street a little bit, and then that was it. And then I could walk almost to the park. Okay, I got to where I could go further, and then I got a little further, and then I got a little further. Before I knew it, I was going all the way around. You just got to keep going. You got to keep going. And ladies and gentlemen, this is a woman that cuts her own grass, does all of her <laughs> own yard work, cleans the house, cooks, works a full-time job, walks sometimes eight miles a day. So for her not to be able to do all those things that she loved was killing her. Oh, yeah. Well, and one of the biggest things, too, and if you're a woman, you know what I'm talking about, keep keeping your weight under control. Now, you know, I still struggle with that a little bit, but it's only because I like to eat the bad foods. I like fattening foods. I like sweets. But before... When I wasn't when I wasn't feeling as good, it, it seemed like all I would do is look at something and gain weight. Now I can, and I was unable to lose weight at all. Now I can't. I know what I need to cut back on, and I can lose a few pounds, and I'm back to where I used to be. So it's possible. It will. You just got to hang in there and keep believing it's going to work, and you're going to get better, and you will. Yeah, we should have done before and after pictures because nobody would ever believe the changes. I know, I know. I should have. And a big thing that people don't understand, uh, and we should have recorded how you sounded back then compared to that alive, sparky voice you have now that is just full of passion for all the things you like to do because you love working out in your yard and doing all that stuff. But when I met you... It didn't sound like you were doing much of anything. I mean, you were pretty discouraged. And I, I had the feeling when I met both of you that you probably didn't think anybody could help you. Well, I didn't. I really thought that, well, this is it. This is how life's going to be. You know, this is it. I didn't know that much about, well, like I said earlier, you know, my, the doctors had told me, we've killed your thyroid. This, this, you're you're going to die if you don't take this medication. Well, the liver can completely regenerate itself. Your lungs can regenerate themselves. You know, why can't every organ in your body regenerate itself if it's given the proper nutrition? Unless they completely take the thing out, you know, I don't know if it, uh, an organ can regrow or not, but the last thing in the world I was ever going to do was let somebody cut my throat and take my thyroid gland out. Forget it. You know, a lot of people think, oh, well, that's just the easiest thing to do. They'll just take it out. It's a it's a simple procedure. They do it hundreds of times a day probably, and I'll just take this little pill for the rest of my life, and I'll be normal. Well, that, to me, that's not normal. Well, and as you found out, the dosages got heavier, and the results got less and less, 
and pretty soon you were not yourself, and you were way That's too right. young to feel that damn old, as Garth Brooks would say. That's right, absolutely. Because eventually the meds are not going to work anymore, and then what are you going to do? You know, you can't. There's no alternative at that point that you've, you're on the highest dosage of that you can take. You don't have a choice but to, to get off of everything and try it naturally. So go for it now yeah. you know, while you still can. Have you had anybody, friends and family, that were watching this as it transpired and were and were motivated from what you've done to follow suit? I've actually had several people... They're interested. I don't know that they've actually gone the route I went, but I, I talk to people almost every day that have a problem. If I see somebody that is struggling or, or they're feeling bad or whatever, and I say, you know, I, 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 and what's good about me is I am a testimony. I have been through it, so I do know how they feel. And I tell them my story, and I give them the option. And some have listened. Some They're still on the fence. They're not real sure about it. But I talk to people all the time, all the time about it. One one of the problems that I've run into, and I want to ask you if I did it to you when you came in, is I'm so crazy passionate about doing this, and I want to help everybody. I want I want a chance. If I hear about somebody and I don't get to help, it drives me crazy. And I I've had some I've had some patients that maybe I scared them away a little bit because they didn't believe I could help, and I was so crazy passionate wanting to help, and I always wondered if they thought, well, maybe I have had patients, not the patient ask me, but their family ask, well, does he have an ulterior motive? Is he, a, is he got a mission? And I said, yeah, my mission is to help people. They, and they thought, I guess I wanted to make money off of them. But did I, did I come across that way when you met me? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, you know, it it wasn't about money at all when we came in, not at all. I mean, you didn't even charge us for the for the hour visit. I think we were in your office. You know, I remember telling Bob when we left, man, this guy's genuine. He's, it's not all about money. You were the first person that I met that honestly really wanted to help me, and you never once mentioned money, ever. Well, great, because so, like I said, I've I've had that thrown up a couple times, and not from the patient that I talked to, but from family members who, for whatever reason, didn't like the advice or what I suggested, and they thought, well, maybe he's got a, a motive, and so I didn't want to come across that way, and I never got a chance to ask you that, and we've become such good friends over the years that now if there's something that comes up, you or Bob will give me a call or email me and we we take care of it and you know whether it's the pet or you that that's one of the neat things we talk about pets on here a lot and i had the gentleman from nature's logic on here a couple of weeks ago and uh you've been doing natural things with your pets and loving them like they were children and real people yes. and uh, so so your pets get the best of the same world that you do for you and your husband now and that's pretty neat. Uh, is there anything particular you do for your pets that you'd like to tell people about? Oh, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I do treat my pets like I do people. Um, I, I believe that pets should be treated like part of the family. I, you know, I don't understand people that have a dog and they just throw it in the backyard and that's it. My dogs, they are my family. 
they get treated like family. I try to to give them what I would eat myself. You know, if we're, if we're, if we're having a good meal, I might give my dog some of that. Um, well, yeah, that, and that's great. Well, Tammy, we are just about out of time. Can I bring you back on another time in the future? Sure, absolutely. Was this your first time on the radio? Yes. Well, fabulous. Well, you have done a fabulous job. Um, I, I really appreciate you coming on. And i just like to tell everybody, thank you. It is always an honor and a privilege to be here, to be a part of your health care. I wanted you to hear from Tammy herself because she always volunteers that I could tell her story. But I knew I couldn't tell it like her. And Well, and if I passion. rambled, I apologize. I'm just very passionate about what I've been through with docking, and I know it works. Well, thank you, Tammy. Uh, we're at that point of the evening where we need to say goodnight. May God bless all of you with health and happiness. And, Tammy, we will bring you on again, and I will talk to you at a later time. Thank you so much for coming on tonight. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Seems the love I've known has always been the most destructive kind. Guess that's why now I feel so old before my time Yesterday when I was young the taste of life was sweet as rain upon my tongue I teased at life as if it were a foolish game the way the evening breeze may tease a candle flame the thousand dreams I dreamed the splendid things I planned I always built to last On weakened, shifting sand I live by night And shun the naked light of day And only now I see How the years ran away Yesterday When I was young So many happy American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out when life is too much to handle use apothecary herbs emotional stress formula feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee you've waited long enough call apothecary herbs now toll free 866 229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3Ws.thepowerherbs.com.
pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in an untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. count high, half of all men over 50 have an enlarged prostate. You can shrink your prostate without harmful drugs or risky surgery. The secret to healing the prostate is to cleanse the prostate and the liver. Call Apothecary Herbs to ask about the prostate kit for a comprehensive way to heal and soothe your prostate. Educate yourself on how easy it can be to disinfect, cleanse, and restore your prostate gland. Call Apothecary Herbs for the prostate kit and successfully reduce swelling, inflammation, dissolve stones, and cleanse the blood to obtain the results you need. Money-back guarantee with every purchase. Call the experts in organ cleansing. Call Apothecary Herbs now for the prostate kit and empower yourself. Toll-free, 866-229-3663 for international callers, 704-875-8010. That's toll-free, 866-229-3663 or visit the web at thepowerherbs.com. resident herbalist Wendy Wilson. Hope you had a great day. Thanks for joining us here on Herb Talk Live, where we like to empower you. And uh, thanks for joining us on the American Voice Radio Network. We got a great show. Magical engineer Frank and I. Oh, we're going to be talking about dementia. Anybody you know kind of losing it upstairs? (laughs) I mean, it's an amazing thing if you have a family member. Not good amazing, though, uh, when they can't remember people's names and then even how to, you know, do personal hygiene. It's bad. So we're going to talk about what could be causing the uptick in dementia cases throughout this nation. So, you know, we'll get to that. Also, we'll, if we get time, we're going to be talking about some um, um, circulation blockers, you know, what you could do to unblock circulation. And we'll see if we have time after that to talk about uh, one of my favorite herbs, and it be ginseng. 
So, and we have a quack report. Got it. We can't forget that. But before we get to that great stuff, big salute and semper fi to righteous men and women in uniform, as you know, lifting them up in prayer, as well as all of America, all of you out there, are praying for righteous leadership. I'm asking the Lord. I'm hitting the knees and seeking the Lord's face. And I'm asking for righteous men of valor. You know, King David had 300 righteous men of valor around him all the time. And people just don't understand what that means. Wow. Well, if you get into history of the time, what it meant to have that kind of status is these guys. You did not mess with these guys. Mm-mm-mm. I mean, you know, it's probably ancient men of valor were probably, you know, uh, Navy SEALs and Marines wrapped together, you know, uh, to the 10th power. Well, these guys, you know, on horseback, they could, you know, shoot arrows and hit their mark. Um, they could actually, uh, on horseback, shoot an arrow and hit, split the arrow on a knife sitting, I don't know, feet, yards away in the ground. You know, so they, they, they had all these skills. And um, I think one of them, I can't remember which one that uh, David had, um, Righteous Men of Valor, he, like, killed, uh, what, uh a uh, hundred men or several hundred men in the course of a half hour, you know, in battle. This is insane. So I'm praying for righteous men of valor to right this nation. Yep. And God's will be done. So we're asking for that. I hope you join me in that prayer and we'll see what the Lord upstairs has in mind. And without further ado, let's do the quack report. Thanks Frank. All right, um, first up in the quack report, we're going to the U.K. We're kind of monitoring the problem over there. We've talked about it a little bit in the last uh, couple of months about um, their socialized health care program kind of teetering on collapse because, uh, you know, when you try to make something free, that's just not going to work, see? Uh, and uh, so what's happening is the junior doctors over there are, have gone on strike, so they're a national health care service, which was started in 1948 um, and has progressively got, you know, uh, more socialized as the years gone by. But junior doctors now are making history because, you know, they're not working for free, apparently. Uh, medics walking off uh, junior doctors. So the U- UK's specialized healthcare system has, what have they done is they've attempted to diminish the value of the up-and-coming physicians there by demanding they work longer hours for less pay. Now, granted, doctors are known to work weekends to uh, stay above and beyond their time for, you know, leaving the hospital. Uh, but it's this thing is not affecting older physicians. So the ones that are seniors, physicians have, you know, tenure, if you will. They're untouched by these pay cuts, but, of course, a lot of them are nearing retirement, so they're going to retire with all their bundle of cash. Uh, But the junior doctors in the U.K., guess what they're doing? They're saying, hey, uh -uh. Uh, we're leaving. We're going to Australia and New Zealand to get better jobs over there. Well, you know, good luck with that. And where does uh, that leave the free health care in the U.K.? Situation eventually will play out, and you wonder if the U.S., is going to follow in those footsteps. Just mark it and remember. All right, last but not least in the quack report. Let's see, this is um, some studies. We're the uh, Swedish study. 
uh, and the University of Michigan did a study. They said kids who play outside are smarter, more creative, better adapted to challenges in real life. I believe that. Uh, so if you allow your kids to play outside, you know, get some freedom out there, unstructured activities, you know, explore nature, get into the environment there, uh, make some decisions, play with their friends, you know, um, you know just letting children go a little bit. Uh, they learn how to interact and, um, you know, just going out there and finding bugs, you know, and, uh, and, and, and inchworms and um, uh, what do you call them? Uh, those little critters that glow, glowflies, firebugs. You know, letting children create games and um, play with their friends gives them um, some ideal conditions where they can develop leadership skills, you know, teamwork, problem solving, um, imagination. All these are qualities that help their, their little brains mature and adapt to the challenges that are coming in real grown-up life. So the stereotypical American kid now spends an average of seven hours inside behind electronic devices. And American children today spend only 30 minutes outside in unstructured play. And that's if they get that. If it's raining, they don't get to do that. So kids need more free time, you know, to just lay in the grass. See what kind of shapes they can find in the clouds up there. Uh, well, hopefully no chemtrails. And, you know, catch some bugs, talk with their friends, let their imagination drift a little bit. You know, when you separate the kids from nature, if, if you don't let them play in the mud, climb the trees, listen to the birds and the bees, uh, they lose their connection with nature and with a lot of important elements of life. So according to the study by the University of Michigan, just being outside with nature, they say, improves the child's memory and attention. Oh, well, get the attention deficit kids way out there in the grass. Uh, let the butterflies, let them chase those. Uh, yeah, see if they can catch one of those. Let them focus on that. Uh, on top of that, children who play outside, they say, are healthier, smarter, they have better immune systems because they're exposed to more germs. Their immune system is allowed to adapt. And according to the Swedes, their study, they say children uh, engage, if they engage in cardiovascular outdoor activities, it creates specific proteins in the body and growth factors which stimulate the human brain. There you go. Let's take note of that, shall we? And that wraps the quack report. Oh, thanks, Frank. Okay. First up, we're going to be talking about dementia. I had a question. Is dementia drug-induced? Everyone ask that question? Well, I am. We've been told that the United States has an epidemic of dementia on its hands. So what constitutes an epidemic? Well, apparently, if you have over 5 million Americans that are literally losing their minds, I guess that's it. So if this is accurate, it is pretty outrageous, these percentages of people not able to function. So medicine boasts that 
expectancy is much higher as Americans are living longer. However, what good is living longer if you don't have your cognitive function? So what could be causing this? And is it preventable? Let's find out. First, we're going to define dementia. Because according to InsideDementia.com, the word dementia is a term used to describe a broad category of disease due to nerve cell malfunction. And apparently, there are more than 100 different forms of dementia. So this would include things like Parkinson's, vascular dementia, also known as stroke, Alzheimer's, and what is known as mixed dementia. Mixed dementia is uh, 45% of the cases are combined mixed dementia, which is an Alzheimer's with another type of dementia thrown in. Now, when our brain nerve cells begin to die or malfunction, there are changes in our memory, our behavior, and our ability to concentrate and our capability to learn things. So if the damage continues uh, and it's severe enough, brain nerve cell death can affect an individual's ability to carry out basic bodily functions such as grooming, walking, or swallowing. Now, prion disease or mad cow's disease may also fall into this category of dementia. So we're told that Alzheimer's disease is the most common diagnosed in about 80% of the cases. So the term dementia is Latin. It began to be used about 50 B.C., which means being out of one's mind. All right, let's look at some of the statistics. About 40% of the dementia cases are happening to people under the age of 65. A majority of these cases, regardless of age, are happening to females. So why do women have a 10 to 20% greater risk of dementia over the men? Well, we're told that 1 in 11 people over 65 are going to have some form of dementia. So if you're female over the age of 65, those statistics change to 1 in 6. And according to InsideDementia.com, we had 35 million Americans with dementia in 2010, and they expect to have 65 million by 2030 and 115 million by 2050. So what could be driving these outrageously high projections? Well, the University of Michigan also states that all forms of dementia are on the rise. Why? Well, let's look at dementia mortality for just a quick moment. Uh, we're told by health authorities that one in three Americans over the age of 65, are, they're going to die from dementia. Apparently, dementia is the fifth leading cause of death in the U.S., and it's also a category of disease that medicine has no effective treatment for. So all medicine can do is try to slow down the symptom development as the disease progresses. Well, you know, I came across this map. And according to the Alzheimer's Association, they have this map of the United States, and they have projected the rates of dementia in the U.S. into 2025. So their U.S. map, shows a higher majority of these cases, 82% to 127%, are going to occur in the northwest states of Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Nevada, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, and Colorado. Now, the second worst areas where 50 to 81% of the cases are going to occur are in the southwest, south central, and southeastern parts 
of the U.S. Now, the central interior and the northeast seem to be below a 25% percentile of occurrence. Why is that? Right? Well, let's see what medicine says about that. Are they explaining any of this? I mean, medicine's got some explaining to do here. Uh, Modern medicine says they expect most people as they age to develop some form of dementia. They equate the disease with old age. However, they also cite other causes such as genetics, head injury, heart disease, diabetes, high cholesterol, obesity, smoking, and surprisingly, get this, low education. Now, according to scientific medicine, if you are someone that has a low level of education, that you are also someone with lower brain development. That's the first time I've heard that. Brain dysfunction can be due to a lack of higher learning. So why are we also going to be told here by medicine that there is really no significant test that can conclusively determine if someone has Alzheimer's. So, at best, physicians can only state probable Alzheimer's disease on a patient's medical record. They typically do the process of elimination. You know, they eliminate depression and trauma, infection, thyroid dysfunction, and nutritional deficiency in in tumors and that things like that until they wind up with, well, what's left, the dementia category. But then there's these hitchhiker problems, we're told, that comes along with dementia. With your diagnosis of Alzheimer's, there are also health problems, they say, that tend to also crop up, such as vision problems, sleep problems like sleep apnea, and insulin issues. So patients with diabetes and sleep apnea, they say, have a greater risk of Alzheimer's, according to science. Huh. Well, let's look at some of the funding for research. Taxpayer funds, where are they going? Well, Americans are paying for Alzheimer's research to the tune of $580 million through the National Institute of Health. Uh, to give you a little comparison, taxpayer money going to cancer research is about $6 billion, and $4 billion goes to heart disease research. So what they typically come up with in the halls of science are new treatments to actually treat symptoms of disease rather than curing it. Well, let's face it. There's no money in curing anybody. So why would they bother? Well, let's look at the possible causes, shall we? Now, there are many explanations why people may appear senile or have dementia. Now, we should be careful to evaluate all the possibilities, and some of them could be right under our noses. We can't rely on healthcare professionals to admit that the prescription medications could be the culprit for a vast majority of the dementia happening today. Now, in some cases, medications are now available over the counter, so you don't need a prescription. So the next question is, does medicine already know that certain types of medicines are causing damage to our brains, producing dementia? And the answer is a definite yes. Here's a quote from Pharmacist Noel Campbell, he says, we found that taking one anticholinergic medication drug significantly increased the risk of developing cognitive impairment. Taking two of these 
drugs doubles the risk. And this was significant and already known risk in the American population, end of quote. Hmm. So we have a drug-induced dementia going on. Uh, in a vast majority of cases, the pain medications are causing long-term damage to the brain. Other products also causing similar damage are insomnia drugs, cardiovascular drugs, allergy medication, and drugs for incontinence. So these would be a class of drugs that are being called anticholinergics, and they block the acetylcholine, which is your brain neurotransmitters. So uh, here's a quote from Dr. Malez Bustani. He's at the IU School of Medicine. He says, simply put, we've confirmed anticholinergics can cause a, or worsen cognitive impairment, which involves gradual memory loss, end of quote. Well, here's some common drugs uh, that Americans are taking fairly regularly, which pretty much destroying their brain cells. Uh, Benadryl for allergies, uh, Dramamine for motion sickness, Excedrin PM, Nitol for sleep, Somonex for sleep, Tylenol PM for sleep, Unisom for sleep, uh, Paxil for depression, obsessive compulsive disorders, uh, Detrol for overactive bladder or urgency issues, uh, Demerol for pain and is also a sleep aid, and Paxil, antidepressant, anti-anxiety drug. So this is really, folks, this is just the tip of the iceberg because drugs for antiarrhythmia, antihistamines, antispasmodics, anti-Parkinson's drugs, muscle relaxants, and tricyclic antidepressant drugs are also on this list that have the anticholinergic, you know, classification that are causing dementia. So there's a more detailed list at uh, Virginia, VirginiaGeriatrics.org, if you want to check it out there. If you're on our newsletters list, you would have got the hot link there. So you can go check out the list, see if you're taking any of those drugs that are causing you to, you know, lose your mind, as it were. All right, side effects. Some of the side effects when you're taking some of these anticholinergic drugs other than cognitive impairment are dry mouth and nose, lack of sweat, constipation, dizziness, drowsiness, unsteady on your feet, headache, difficulty urinating, visual impairment including glaucoma, disorientation, Difficulty swallowing, delirium, fatigue, high blood pressure, breathing difficulties, convulsions, behavior changes, hallucinations, severe muscle weakness, skin problems, and slurred speech. My goodness, so what do we see here? Well, based on the Alzheimer's Association map and the drug-induced factor for dementia, we may conclude that certain areas of the country may be more disposed to depression. Other areas may be more disposed to severe allergies and people are on those drugs and they're destroying their brain cells, causing the cognitive problem. So we can also ascertain that people with sleep, vision, heart, and insulin problems are on medications that are also promoting their cognitive decline. So women are also, they also seem to more, be more prone to anxiety 
and those medications are promoting dementia. Well, you know, here's a natural antidote. Uh, research has suggested that regular exercise can be a factor in protecting us from dementia-type diseases. Uh, this type of exercise was really not important to the research team, just that that physical movement helps prevent brain shrinkage to protect cognitive function. So one example was walking uh, 40 minutes per day, and the researchers also mentioned that the exercise helps the brain to do multifunctional type activities and reduces stress and anxiety, which, you know, can reduce the likelihood of you needing any of those drugs, which could risk your brain to dementia. And, you know, there's always natural solutions for these problems. Um, there are plenty of natural nutritional solutions to getting better sleep, improving your vision, reducing the need for diabetic drugs, heart drugs, anxiety or depression drugs. And you know what? Apothecary Herbs offers medicinal herbs for these situations and more. So before you risk your brain cells to prescription medications and dementia, you want to give them a call. Give them a call and get a catalog. They have a free catalog they can send you. The number is 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. Now, if you're outside the U.S., dial 704-885-0277. That's their international number, 704-885-0277. Or you can visit them online at thepowerherbs.com. That's where your healthcare options just became endless because it puts the power back in your hands. You have to take those risks. You know, get a catalog. Get a free one. Hey, that's the best kind, right? Also, they have uh, money-saving herb coupons up on their website. You can check them out there. And uh, do sign up if you're on the website, thepowerherbs.com. Sign up for the newsletters. They're delivered by email. There's two of them. And they're free. So you can sign up. Lots of empowering information will come to you each and every week. They have the American Survival Newsletter that goes out on Tuesdays. And, of course, the folks from um, Discount Gold and Silver are providing great market information to help, you know, protect your financial assets if you're, you know, into, you know, protecting your retirement and so forth. And also you get some health information in that one as well. And then the Health Quest goes out on Fridays, which is your natural solutions to everyday problems. And they are delivered to your email each week free. So sign up for those. They're under the Books and Newsletters tab. And uh, you can get that information. Now, if you're interested in learning more about herbs, you want to get your feet wet and you're just not sure, uh, check out the Healthy Guidelines tab at thepowerherbs.com. That will give you a quick synopsis of things like, you know, how do you do organ cleansing? What's immune boosting all about? How do I store my herbs so they have a longer shelf life? But if you want more detailed information, you definitely want to download the Power Herbs book. And this book is incredible. Hundreds of pages of uh, empowering information that really could save your life, okay? And it's uh, in three different formats. So when you download, you have to make sure you pick the right format you want. So on the drop-down for the Power Herbs book, it's going to ask you, do you want the PDF? Do you want the iPad or Kindle version? Now, if you don't select one, it defaults to the PDF. Okay, so uh, depending on what device you want to save it to, that's the file you want to select. And the book has an herb symptom reference guide in it, and uh, which is really cool. And it's just $14.99. Yeah, that's all. And you get a powerhouse of information to get you started. Jumpstart your health quest. That's what I like about it. 
PowerHerbs.com. Check it out. I can see it's time to take a break. We'll be right back. into the original medicine. Herbalist Wendy Wilson will be right back. If you have a heart condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the three W's.thepowerherbs.com. Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Henry Ford, the automobile. And herbalist Wendy Wilson? Well, discover for yourself. Listen to Herb Talk Live. make the aspirin mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, you can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom American Voice Radio. 
Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. provided strength. Indeed, the chemical compounds of thyme contain antioxidants, an effective germicide that kills whooping cough bacteria and makes breathing easier. Just imagine what you can do with thyme herb when it comes to respiratory ailments like croup, pneumonia, asthma, and sinusitis. The extra benefit of thyme herb is that it soothes nerves and stops spasmodic coughing, so you can get some rest. Who says you don't have time to take care of yourself? Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free for time, tincture, and tea to soothe your cough and get some rest. 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International 704-875-8010. Or online at thepowerherbs.com. mentioned uh, the folks at Apothecary Herbs, we were just talking about dementia, they've got this uh, herb liquid formula called Brain Concentrate, okay? Really good for memory stuff, great for people that, you know, suffered from a stroke. If it, I had a family member, I would be saying, hey, how about some herbs? <laughs> uh, it's, it's great. Even if you don't have any cognitive issues, you can still use this formula to really power up your alertness and your focus. Uh, it's great. It's called uh, Brain Concentrate. So you can check it out at powerherbs.com. Yeah, just throw it in your V8 every day. Mm. All right, we're going to talk about some um, circulation uh, blockage issues and how we can bust that. Uh, you know, because, you know, God in heaven, our creator, the master chemist of everything, uh, he's provided us with herbs that remove a lot of blockages in the body. So and we can even use herbs to prevent blockages from happening. Of course, you know, got to watch that lifestyle. That's going to be an important necessity on our part. Uh, so we, we don't want to recongest systems if uh, we're cleansing and using some blockage busters. We want to do our due diligence there. So diets such as with natural omega-3 fatty acids will help prevent, um, you know, the problems a lot of people are facing basically with the American diet lifestyle. So omega-3 fatty acids. So watch the oils. Uh, I would use coconut or or uh, olive oil with the omega-3s. The other oils, not so good. 
Okay. Uh, this is why we got a lot of heart disease and diabetes and cancers because, you know, we're, we're not doing our due diligence of what we put in the body. I tend to keep it really basic, right? Um, cook on from scratch, uh, you know, and, and just keeping it real simple and basic. And uh, it, if you got too many ingredients on a product that you're, re- you're thinking about buying, I mean, my, my rule is you got more than eight ingredients listed, back on the shelf it goes. So we're going to take a look at some very basic blockage-busting herbs. We have lots of power. Put the power back in your hands. So we're going to talk about a lot of this. Um, now, typically herbs that have a lot of power and action that move things in the body, move fluids, move blood, uh, these tend to have very high heat index ratings, these herbs. Uh, for instance, your cayennes, your habaneros, your um, jalapenos, a little bit weaker than ha- habaneros, but you African bird pepper, these are really hot, but they move, they have an action to them, and they get the work done. Um, now, cayenne, your capsicum peppers, um, interchangeable type words, uh, they are herbs that are native to the tropic regions, and the name cayenne came from the Caribbean, derived from an Indian word, K-I-A-N, and capsicum is technically a fruit berry that's grown in tropical shrubs. So it, if it, it, it is really a, encoded in Europe when uh, Christopher Columbus, you know, officially imported from New Guinea a lot of these red peppers, and they were hot. And these peppers, they were used by the Native American Indians of South Mexico, and also as early as 700 B.C., uh, these peppers have been used. Archaeologists have excavated sites containing these red peppers and the seeds from them going way back, thousands of years. Now, in the Latin cultures, they would actually mix chocolate with your hot cayenne peppers, um, it was an Aztec kind of thing of uh, the Aztec Empire rulers. Um, it was usually kind of, you know, a high esteem thing. Only the elite had the chocolate with the cayenne, I think, which, you know, was reserved for their royal treats, if you will. And the origin of cayenne is somewhat of a mystery, though. Some believe the Greeks uh, deserve the credit for naming cayenne from the Greek word cap meaning a to bite. Uh, cayenne, though, today remains the world's most popular sought-after spice, and much of the cayenne imported into the United States does not come from the Caribbean or South America, but it comes from Africa and India. So cayenne is the name of the capital of French Guinea, or Uganda, and if you, you may be wondering, you know, what about Tabasco sauce? What's going on with that? Well, isn't that an American pepper? That's what people think. Well, it's grown in the Gulf Coast region of the U.S., including Louisiana. But globally, we plant about 2.5 million acres of cayenne. 25% of the world's population uses this herb on a daily basis as a spice. It is a mainstay, a stock item in their pantry. All right, so what did the ancients use the cayenne for? aside from spicing up their food. Um, Well, they used it in desserts and wine. Um, The ancient cultures, they used cayenne for a lot of things. They also used it for medicine to relieve things like toothache. They healed ulcers with it. They 
they improved vision with it. They purged kidney stones with it. And they also promoted urination with it. So in the 18th century, they would mix cayenne with tobacco snuff. And it gave it a little kick, I'm thinking. Uh, did it promote sneezing? Well, it sure did, but it also relieved congestion. Yeah, there you go, congestion buster. So the Europeans really didn't use cayenne for digestive ills, thinking that the herb caused ulcers. But the Americans, the early uh, uh, settlers and the herbalists in America, Samuel Thompson, for instance, used uh, herbs to cure, used cayenne and lobelia, two herbs to cure millions of people. One was to purge, one was to improve circulation. So his theory was simple. I want to improve circulation, I want to remove toxins. End of story. <laughs> yeah, keeping it simple, Thomas. That's cool. All right, so one of the herbs that um, he used, uh, cayenne. But after World War One, the natural healers tended to use cayenne only externally for things like arthritis, uh, sore muscles. Rarely internally. Sometimes they would use it internally for colds, you know, for head colds. But American cayenne was basically used to treat things um, in the early days. Um, they wanted to remove tremors, withdrawal symptoms from addictions like alcoholism. So they used cayenne. It's listed in folks' medicine. Um, they used it to stop thumb sucking on toddlers and nail biting uh, when they applied it externally. Of course, you know, Department of Social Services been knocking at your door if you did that today. Well, let's look at some of the research. Well, the heat value of your hot cayennes will dictate the medicinal power or the use of. So the hotter the cayenne that measures in Scoville heat units, the more powerful its action. So if you want to add some spice to, let's say, your chili, and you would typically use a local grocery store type chili, that may have 10,000 Scoville heat units to it. But if you want your cayenne to balance your blood pressure from head to foot, you're going to need about 250-plus Scoville heat units. So the ancients were kind of right. They would use cayenne to help with digestive problems. Um, and the reason cayenne does that is that when you eat your cayenne, it starts a cascade of reactions in the body. It stimulates the production of saliva, for one thing, then stomach secretions, which contain a lot of enzymes and acids to break down foods and improve digestion. Also, secondly, cayenne inhibits the growth of viruses and bacteria that causes ulcers in the digestive system. That's why, you know, people wouldn't think to ever use cayenne if they have a stomach ulcer, but A, it would keep it from bleeding, and B, it kills the, um, the virus and bacteria there and helps the ulcer heal fast. Let's look at some studies. A study that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, hopefully it's not fraudulent, uh, they, were, they implanted cameras, tiny cameras in the stomach of volunteers to observe the action and condition of their stomach lining when they ate something spicy compared to bland type of foods. So they concluded in their study there wasn't really any difference in the condition of the stomach after they ate spicy, like jalapeno or habanero peppers, uh, compared to eating the bland type of food. So actually the peppers, they said, uh, contributed to um, gastrointestinal function, you know, better function, did not damage it, though. Um, a lot of times, too, people will say, well, I can't have 
cayenne, it'll give me diarrhea. Well, there is this belief that if you eat spicy foods, it'll give you diarrhea. But in fact, cayenne helps to destroy the bacteria, which promotes infectious diarrhea. So, but if you still have that, you know, in your head, I can't, I can't go with my friends out to, you know, taco night. <laughs> well, what you can do is you can still go to taco night, but before you eat anything, take some slippery elm, okay? Slippery elm inner bark. It's, uh, it's better in a liquid. You just take mm, a quarter to, let's say, a full teaspoon, depending on how severe your problem is, and you won't have the diarrhea. Guarantee. Right? Where do you get it? Well, of course you get it at thepowerherbs.com. That's where they have everything. You would look under digestive aids. Okay? Great for diarrhea. It stops it in a skinny minute. I've used it on little chihuahuas that, you know, couldn't stop going, you know? Doctors couldn't, vets couldn't stop it. Give them a little flip around. Magic. Almost magical. It's like, ugh. All right, what about pain? Well, the ancients used their cayenne to treat a lot of chronic pain conditions. Uh, it's very old therapy. It's based on applying cayenne externally as a counter-irritant. So your brain has a limit on how many pain signals that it can process at one time. So the minor superficial pain from cayenne on the skin reduces the nervous system's ability to trigger the pain that is deeper or more severe. So numerous studies have been done on this since the 80s on cayenne's ability to numb pain by a chemical substance in the peripheral nerves called P for, for peripheral nerves. And therefore, the FDA is really no problem approving capsicum to be used as an over-the-counter topical pain-relieving product. And that's why you see it in a lot of things, uh, creams and lotions and ointments and whatnot. So um, I do. I, 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 like, I like it to pair it with ginger if you've got a lot of gout, arthritic-type things going. Um, excellent for arthritics uh, when you pair it with ginger. Um, well, let's talk about osteoarthritis. A lot of Veterans Affairs Hospital Miami, Florida, did some research uh, with their osteoarthritis patients there. They gave some a placebo ointment and one a capsicum-based ointment. Then they applied the ointment four times a day for about 12 weeks, and the group using the capsicum ointment reported greater relief from their pain and better range of motion in their joints. Um, another study done by the Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center had similar findings just nine weeks after using an ointment with capsicum and it was applied twice a day. Um, uh, and then in St. Luke's study, they had fewer applications, which indicated the ointment contained a, you know, long-lasting type of action and uh, didn't compare to the pharmaceutical uh, other uh, creams they tested. So osteoarthritic affects 16 million Americans. Just make sure you get some straight-up real cayenne in your rubs, not some synthetic stuff. The synthetic stuff, according to the St. Luke's study didn't even compare to the organic. So always read your labels. And what about fibromyalgia? Oh, yeah, fibromyalgia, muscle pain, tenderness, soft tissues. Wisconsin Medical College in Milwaukee tested cayenne capsicum on 45 fibromyalgia patients. Half the patients were rubbed uh, their muscles and joints with the capsicum product. 
uh, four times a day for about a month. The other half used the placebo, and uh, the capsicum ointment helped reduce their pain and tenderness significantly. Well, if you've got fibromyalgia and you've got chronic fatigue, those are two are sister conditions. I mean, you know, rubbing the ointment on is fine. It just reduces the symptom. But if you want to get at the cause, it's called getting rid of the overgrowth of yeast inside your body. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. And until you balance those those floras in there, you're going to have that problem. So um, I was just talking to a bunch of people about that the other day, and they were just amazed. They had been suffering for years. Nobody ever told them that. Well, usually it's um, uh, an emotional trauma or um, a course of antibiotics um, that tends to throw off the flora balance. And uh, more so than not, it's the antibiotic stuff. You know, usually people get down that long-term therapy for things like chronic sinusitis or something else, and that just messes them up. All right, cayenne also is good for psoriasis. University of Michigan, uh, they tested 197 psoriasis volunteers using some capsicum cream on their red scaly itchy patches for six weeks. Uh, Compared to the placebo, capsicum cream won. Um, Sometimes psoriasis is usually an indication of you're allergic to your diet. Uh, Typically, culprits would be either dairy or wheat. Get off of those and see how you do. Um, cayenne and shingles, uh, herpes roster viruses produces shingles, chronic pain, nerve. Oh, it's bad. Uh, I like it. And actually, the folks at Apothecary Herbs have um, shingles be gone product, and it does have cayenne with it. So you can check that out. Works well, gets rid of the shingles in a couple days. Um, diabetic neuropathy, if you're one of those, um, you definitely have circulation problems in your extremities. Um, That's why your nerves are pinging and give you tenderness and pain down there. Definitely want to uh, use your capsicum and your ginger. Capsicum is good at moving blood from the center cavity of the core to the extremities, but ginger helps the circulation, the blood flow get to the small capillaries to feed those nerve endings and to tone down that sensitivity and pain. so you definitely want to do that, uh, those two things. So inside. Uh, you can also use it outside. A lot of people use rubs on the outside. That's fine. Um, but definitely it's a circulation problem for that. And then what about cluster headaches? University of Florence, Italy, tested capsicum on patients suffering from cluster headaches. In their study, the patients experienced one-sided cluster headaches. The capsicum product was applied uh, and... Um, Helps out with the headaches. Uh, they reported 69% uh, headache relief in just a few days. So there's a lot you can do with cayenne other than just spice up your food. Um, cayenne does help reduce cholesterol, prevents heart disease, according to research in the U.S. and India. So if you're looking for a liquid cayenne that you can just you know throw in V8 juice, for instance, zing it up, Improve circulation, um, you can check out the product at thepowerherbs.com. They have it under the um, 
circulation tab, I believe it's a circulation tab. Uh, they do have heart formulas. They have a lot of things there. They have a heart attack kit. All these things with cayenne moves the blood, moves circulation. Um, they even have a great product called Liquid Stitches. So if you have a cut, you don't want it to scar, you use that, which will help it heal up in a matter of a day. And no scarring. It's amazing. I mean, even if you had some surgery and you've got all stitched up, you could apply that, and when they take out your sutures, um, no scar. And your your doctor will go say, what? What is that? You know, but they never want it once they find it's all natural. They never want it. I've been through it before. Uh, so check out thepowerherbs.com. They have your Cayenne Central uh, <laughs> Whole Food supplements there uh, that you could do a lot with uh, for many things. Circulation formula, liquid stitches, heart formula, great sinus formula called Echinacea Deluxe with the cayenne in it. Boy, you talk about getting rid of that in a skinny minute. And um, they got some rubs, arthritic and sports rub there as well if you want to do something topical. So uh, the power of the cayenne there for you. It's a, it's a buster. It's a blockage buster. Keep that in mind. Keep that in your head. That cayenne is a blockage buster, and you can do a whole lot and straighten it out. A whole lot of problems. Thepowerherbs.com. All righty. I don't have time. Oh, I don't have time to go into my ginseng topic. We'll have to save that for next time. But uh, we have a few minutes we can talk about some of the things in modern medicine that they're doing that a lot of people don't realize when it comes to, you know, putting a lot of medication on the market. Um. You know, the U.S. and the U.K., two big countries that sell three out of four of the big pharmaceutical drugs in the world. Okay, so, I mean, if something happens to those two countries who manufacture and distribute most of the drugs, there's going to be a whole lot of problems. Millions of people are not going to have their medications. Pharmaceutical companies, you know, uh, they're not dictated on how they uh, distribute their stuff, but uh, the two powerhouses for drug distribution are the U.S. and the U.K. Um, there's four things uh, that the drug companies do about, you know, putting uh, drugs on the market. And they go through this classification, supposedly, before they present that to the FDA, um, Dr. La Matina, and of course you know Dr. Oz, who's been on TV, um, they've been talking about how the drug companies um, present things. In other words, number one, drug companies tend to underestimate the dangerous side effects of their drugs. And of course we also already know, if you've listened to the show before, you already know the FDA doesn't test anything. They rely on the drug companies to do that. Also, drug companies control the information your doctor gets about the drug. They also control the information on drug studies. That's right. Uh, you will be um, usually, uh, if you're a patient, you like the healthcare system and you're frequently a guest of your doctor's office, well, then you're going to be prescribed at some point a drug you don't need. That's guaranteed. And drugs tend to target, of course, your symptoms only. They don't do anything about the underlying cause of your problem. 
So, and then, of course, when you take your medications, you may get what they call our side effects, undesirable consequences, also known as secondary diseases. Now, why is a side effect considered a disease? Well, because your doctors are permitted to prescribe another drug for the side effect, and if it were not considered or classified as a disease, your doctor could not do that. So you take your medication for one thing, it creates a new disease for you, and then you have to take another drug for that, and uh, it just escalates from there. Um, well, you know, drug companies actually look for ways to broaden the access marketplace for the demand of their drugs. So they're not going to do anything to diminish that. You're not going to, they're not going to broadcast bad news. No, 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 no. Uh, so <laughs> I tell people, you know, you should be proactive with your health care. Uh, take the power back. Otherwise, you know, it, it's sort of like, you know, trying to get uh, information out of the government. It's all about the questions you ask. Same thing with medicine. It's all about the questions you ask. Uh, now, statin drugs, we've heard, also help, you know, rob people of their memory, their short-term memory. People tend to have poor memory when they're on that. Um, it's almost like having Alzheimer's, like we were talking about in the first part of the show, where a lot of these drugs, it's drug-induced dementia is what it is. Um, so basically when you're on these statin drugs, you're removing a lot of the cholesterol the brain needs to function. You have cholesterol all over your body. Uh, all the cells of your body need cholesterol to function. So when you start dropping the cholesterol, stripping it out of the system, what happens is um, Shane Ellison was on the show. He's a chemist. Uh, he wrote a book, Over-the-Counter Natural Cures, and he put it this way. It's almost like your cells just literally fall apart. You're falling apart when you're taking a lot of those types of drugs. And that's why people feel like they're falling apart. They're just, you know, they look terrible. They look like they're just, you know, disintegrating. And they are, literally, on a cellular level. That's what they're doing. So they can they can try to pop as many synthetic vitamins as they want, but as, soon as, as long as they're taking the cause of the problem, that's like a big Band-Aid. Not going to help. Not really. You got to stop the toxic overload. Got to, you know, put a stop to that. And, uh, and and people just get sucked into this system, and then they're patients for life, and it's it's a problem. They get weaker and weaker, and it's a problem. So I say, look for things that strengthen you, not make you dependent. And if you're looking to get off these uh, these drugs for life, you know, give the folks at Apothecary Herbs a call. Get a catalog. See what you can do to strengthen, reverse the problem. Get it, you know, throw that in reverse and get it in control. Powerherbs.com. Give them a call, 866-229-3663, 866-229-3663. Three, the powerherbs.com. That's where your healthcare options just became endless. I'm out of time. The information presented is not intended to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure disease. Seek medical advice from a licensed medical physician, if you dare, before using any product or therapy. I'm your herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Until next time, be well.
prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. My co-host, Alfred Adisk, and James Corbett will be joining you for the second and third segments of the program today, and that is when it is Thursday, April 14th, 2016. I got that right. Yes, I know what day and month and year it is. It's Thursday, April 14th, 2016. It was uh, a crazy day here at Discount Gold and Silver. And you know, I've been running those specials on the Mint State 61 $20 gold pieces, and they can't be found. They've disappeared. And uh, it was an incredible buy at those prices. And again, it just goes to show you how very little those coins uh, how how little supply there are of those coins. So, hey, we still have specials, but uh, they're beginning at Mint State 62 $20 gold pieces. So we are no longer selling Mint State 61 $20 Liberty gold pieces. So, again, very limited supply. Yes, we had a lot of pressure on gold today. We have gold down 1810 today, 1810, but that didn't stop the $20 gold pieces uh, from going up a little bit. You have uh, uh, 1810 on gold to the downside at 1225. Silver's down 9 cents at 1622. Platinum is down 10 at 994. Palladium is up 15 at 563. And I did forget earlier in the week when I thought, well, of course, the week is not over yet, but uh, we do have the IMF meeting uh, here in Washington. And, you know, whenever there's the meetings, the Bilderbergers, whenever the elites have their meetings, you have 
upside in the stock market and downside in the gold and silver market. So I, you know, probably 95% of the time. So you'll have pressure, pressure on precious metals and, uh, uh, the, the paper markets do fine. And that's exactly what they did today. So, uh, we'll wait to see what tomorrow brings us. USDX today was up uh, 94.95, up 0.14. And, of course, earlier in the week, we were into the 93.99 area. So it's almost up a full point on the USDX. Crude oil was down a few cents, 36 to be exact, 41.40. And as I mentioned, the paper markets are, are all up significantly. And uh, you have the Dow. Uh, well, they were up significantly earlier in the week. Today, they're only up 18 points of 17,926. The NASDAQ uh, was basically unchanged at 49.45, and the S&P basically unchanged at 2,082. Um, the 10-year yield bumped up a little bit, 0 0.02, at 1.78%, and uh, Euro, 1.13. Um, European and Asian markets fairly unchanged, although Japan was up significantly a little over 3%. So, yes, it's an exciting day, you know, when we give recommendations and we have sales. And I'm telling you the value there was in the Minstate 61s to have them totally disappear. Um, it was quite exciting uh, to see that happen. So you, uh, everyone got some great deals on the Mint State 61 $20 Liberty. So, uh, but we do have 62, 63. So your next stepped up tomorrow, uh, we will have, um, because of this, uh, happening so quickly, uh, we're going to have David Krieger, uh, one of my suppliers join us on tomorrow's program. So make sure you tune in tomorrow. Gold sales surged, uh, in Japan, uh, through the month of March. Uh, and, of course, this was after the, the country moved to set negative interest rates, and uh, all their people are scurrying for a shelter. And, again, it's another sign uh, that global central bank policy of keeping borrowing costs lower below zero is, uh, you know, is creating a demand for gold and silver. Uh, their bar sales climbed. This is gold bar, not the liquor bar, not the liquid not the booze bar, but gold bar sales climbed by 35% uh, in the first three months um, from a year earlier. Consumer demand in Japan almost doubled to 32.8 metric tons in 2015. And, of course, these are all estimates according to the Gold Council. And we will have James Corbett talk about this next week uh, if they haven't touched on it today. Uh, we know about you have two dozen countries have dropped policy rates below zero. Uh, so it's uh, you have the Bank of Japan, you have the European Central Bank, uh, you have Denmark, Sweden, Switzerland, uh, who have also had set the sub-zero rates. And again, folks, this isn't helping anything. You have the Europeans, they're buying gold as a haven because of negative rates. Over the long run, negative interest rate policies will, may result in structurally higher demand for gold, not just investors, but also from central banks. And of course, this is from the Andrea Lang from the Austrian Mint. Um, so gold's been doing extremely well in the first three months of the year, gold advanced. About 16% in three months in the first uh, through March. 
This is the best quarter in three decades. Can they say that about anything else? So, you know, when you hear these predictions of, you know, gold is going to go to 700 and we're going to touch on that. And maybe I'll go, I was going to touch on that on going out of the segment. I wanted to touch about uh, um, the, the defaults on the uh, high-yield bonds. They're topping $14 billion in April, the largest monthly volume in two years. Um, this is according to Fitch Ratings. The month isn't even half over yet. Um, and I don't know, when we're dealing in trillions and trillions of dollars of debt, maybe 14 billions in defaults in, in the first 14 days of April, maybe that's just peanuts. Um, but you have to look at uh, what has happened, and, and it is the trend that this is going to continue. It's telling you, folks, there's problems out there. There's people that are losing billions of dollars. Uh, the dollar value of defaults is the most since April of 2014, when you had energy future holdings uh, uh, turn into the one, one of the largest bankruptcies in the United States. Uh, this month's default rate for coal companies, you know, we often reference our discussions mainly to the oil industry, to the energy industry, with oil in mind. But this also includes coal. We know what Obama has done to the coal industry, shutting down coal mines one after another. That company default rate is expected to come close to 70%, while the oil and gas exploration and production sector is anticipated to reach about 20 3%. Well, we did talk about that before we go on about gold 700. And uh, let's get to that. Uh, I had an interesting article. Maybe we can talk about this tomorrow about the new balance and the TPP agreement. And uh, don't buy any new balance shoes. All right. You know, I'm looking at the clock and I bet we do have some time uh, to discuss this. The Boston Globe reporting that the U.S.-based shoe manufacturer New Balance, they came out hard against the TPP trade deal, the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal. And, uh, but recently, they've, the company has gone a little quiet on that trade deal. Now we found out. New Balance officials say one reason is that they were told the Department of Defense would give them serious consideration for a contract to outfit recruits with the athletic shoes if mum was the word on the TPP. If they didn't come out and, and say anything negative, they just kept their mouth shut. Uh, the, the government officials would uh, perhaps reward them with a contract uh, to outfit recruits with athletic shoes, but no order has been placed. New Balance official says the Pentagon is intentionally delaying any purchase. So the New Balance is reviving its fight against the trade deal, which would in part gradually phase out tariffs on shoes made in Vietnam. And a loss of the, we know what happens when there's a loss of these tariffs, would make imports cheaper and it would jeopardize its factory jobs in New England. Tariffs on shoes are steep. And New Balance is one of a handful of shoe companies that still manufacture shoes in the United States. Although, eh, 75% of the shoes are made abroad. So it's not like 100% of the shoes are made here in the States. You know, so, you know, 
know, take it with a grain of salt, you know, okay. But still they're here and they were at least providing jobs here in this area in, of uh, uh, Massachusetts. The company's leaders appear to disagree that the now broken deal was underhanded. There was no quid pro quo deal. We wanted to compete for a big piece of business that we are very confident we could win. So they kept their mouth shut about the TPP. Um, VP of Public Affairs for the company tells the Globe that they swallowed the poison pill that is TPP so we could have a chance to bid on these contracts. We were assured this would be a top-down approach as the Department of Defense if we agreed to either support or remain neutral. But it doesn't look like they're going to get the deal as long as Obama is president. Well, you know, I really don't feel sorry for these guys. You know, again, as I mentioned, only 25% of what they do is here in the States. But they were willing to sell out every other U.S. manufacturer just so they could get a deal. They kept their mouth shut so they could get the deal. And they threw all the other manufacturers under the bus. So this is why I would not buy. I would uh, boycott, personally me, whether you do or not, I'm not going to tell you to do that, but personally me, I would boycott New Balance, even though they're 25% of their U.S. made shoes uh, um, are here in the States. So anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting and um now we're going to get back to gold. We're going to get back to $700 gold. An email this morning it says, Hi, Melody. Dent is really sounding the warning bells on gold going into the toilet. What do you think? And this is Harry Dent. And I'm sure you've all heard his interviews. I'm sure you all heard his prediction of gold going to 700. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever taken any of his investment advices. Uh, advice, but uh, I really don't think Harry Dent knows what he is talking about, or he does. There is far greater upside risk to gold than a downside risk. There's more possibilities of going higher for gold than down to 700. Greenspan, in a recent interview, I believe it was just today, he And he only confirms that we've been telling you for years the stimulus is not working. Markets are up as billions, if not trillions, are coming in from China, buying up assets, real estate, and so forth. Corporations are borrowing money to support their share prices. The fundamentals for the stock market, the paper markets, the paper asset markets, is based on corruption and manipulation. Paper assets carry more downside risk than up at these levels. So anyway, on with Harry Dent. I did a little investigation. I found an article where the writer took the time to review every prediction Dent ever made. This article will be in our newsletter on Monday. Um, and this was done, you know, several years ago. Um, this information was provided by AVA Investment analytics. So there are a few things that I 
I'm going to point out. And it's true, the guy who wrote this or provided this information, it sounds like he does have it in for dents for one reason or another. But on the other hand, he went through timeline from, uh, from the very first book Harry Dent wrote uh, and with his predictions, why his predictions were wrong, how Harry Dent came to these predictions, what he was viewing, and it really shows the motive behind all the strange predictions that was made throughout the years. And, you know, Harry Dent was a big hedge fund guy. Wall Street loved him. And uh, because of all these weird and wild predictions and uh, earlier in the year 2000s and, and through the, you know, up until 2010 and so forth, they no longer... You know, they kind of shoved him out the door. They didn't want to have the connection with him any longer. Um, this is what I gather from reading this uh, information uh, from the AVA Investment Analytics. So what did Harry Dent do? He found another niche. He found a niche, another venue. And there's a lot of Wall Streeters in this category. And they turned not to the Wall Street people, but they turned to the alternative media. These people would never be caught dead on shortwave radio. They weren't on shortwave radio in the 90s with their predictions. Some of these silver gurus that are telling you that, you know, with all these shortages and everything, where were they in the 1990s when silver was, you know, two bucks? And you could have purchased a ton of silver at $2. These were the same guys that were in Wall Street telling you not to buy it. But then all of a sudden they have this revelation. <laughs> you know, after the, the great quote on recession, they had this great revelation. And now all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're out of Wall Street and in a new venue, hawking silver and gold. No, I'm sorry, folks. You know, Maybe I am different because it really does come from my heart. I really do believe in gold and silver. I really do believe there isn't anything else. Anything else is pretty much speculation and a gamble. What we, I mean, there's reports from Pastor Butch Paul and his interviews and so forth and some other places. We're going to have a tough week next week, I believe, because Russia is meeting with the Saudis on the 17th, with some OPEC members, I don't know if it's the full OPEC, all the members, but some of them anyway, about capping production for oil. To me, I see that as a reflection on the petrodollar. So yeah, that's the 17th. Anything could happen after that. So that means the petrol, I don't know if it will have an impact on the petrol, but I certainly do see a, a, a pretty good indication that all is not well. We have this big meeting this weekend. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of things coming down the pike. And um, uh, with the election and Donald Trump, yeah, there's a lot of things going on. So what he talks about is how, you know, dense only goal is to herd the sheep. He, he pitches his approach is simple. Um, he has a simple approach to predicting complex trends. And it's a common tactic that is used by snake oil salesmen because they want to appeal to the largest number 
of prospects. So you can find the rest of this in our newsletter. Go to our website, dgscoins.com, dgscoins.com. Uh, sign up for the weekly newsletter. It comes out Monday. And again, folks, you're looking to add some $20 gold pieces to your portfolio. Don't listen to these guys who say it's not the coin you should buy because they're doing you wrong. The key to buying these $20 gold pieces is buying it at my price, and getting the right one that is suitable for you to and you need to diversify. So give us a call at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Right after the breaks, you will be joined by Al and Mr. Corbett. condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3w.thepowerherbs.com. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices.
I'm Alfred Adisk, and this is Financial Survival. Our guest is James Corbett from the Corbett Report. James is generally here on uh, Wednesday night when we interview him, and for Thursday when the program is rebroadcast uh, during the daytime show. Part of the reason we do that, of course, is because it's it's breakfast time for James in Japan, and it's... Uh, <laughs> It's bedtime for me here in, in Texas, and we have to kind of make a little accommodation in order so we can be on the same clock. So, James, how's your breakfast? Uh, actually, we're heading on towards lunchtime. It's coming up towards noon, so I'm, I might right. get a little hungry during the interview. Might be. Well, it may be daylight. We have do do we do we have daylight savings time in Japan? Does that explain? We do not. No. Don't. Well, that's probably that's probably why I'm confused about this. We've seen a report from Reuters. This is we touched on this last week. IMF warns Brexit could deal blow to global economy. According to the International Monetary Fund, Britain could deal a damaging blow to the fragile global economy if it votes to leave the European Union at its June 23rd referendum. If England, well, first, what are the chances that England will in fact move out of the uh, European Union, distance itself from the European Union on June 23rd. What are the chances that's going to happen? If it does happen, will the, U the European Union be badly damaged? Will it really be badly damaged, or will it be just inconvenienced? And finally, will other nations follow Britain's example? A three-part question. I think there was a lot embedded in there. All right, let's pick it apart. Um, hmm. Will it, as far as what the IMF is saying, will it affect the global economy? I think that's more of the scaremongering and hype that we've seen that we saw, for example, when Scotland was talking about getting, uh, ex exiting from the United Kingdom or detaching itself from Great Britain. I, I think that was a lot of hype and scaremongering and fear that was used to try to swing the vote towards the globalist side. You've got to be in the EU in order to be able to do anything productively in the economy. I think that's a load of nonsense. And I th I'm pretty sure the global economy will find a way to, to, you know, power through if Britain is no longer part of the EU, whatever that really means. I mean, it's not even part of the Eurozone. It's just part of the European Union. So I don't expect, I mean, there would obviously be things to work out in terms of how does this affect trade deals and, and uh, borders and customs and all of that. But I, I'm sure there wouldn't be, a, you know, an, an overnight grinding to a halt of all trade. So I think that's a lot of scaremongering. But, I mean, will it affect, will it affect the EU, yes, certainly. It would have a dramatic effect, I think, because Britain, although not really a founding kind of central member, I think the EU is more built upon the you know French, Dutch, German, Northern European axis than it is the, the British outlier. But still, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty big nation, a pretty important economy, a pretty important nation diplomatically and politically, militarily. So I'm sure that it would have a, a pretty important effect. And it would have a psychological effect, I think, on the rest of the European Union. Would it cause other people? It would certainly embolden other people in other parts of the EU who are interested in getting out of the EU. And it would certainly be a very, very shining example for them about how to do that. So it would have some pretty big effects that way. I just think that the economic side of it is, uh, is being overblown in order to try to shift people's opinion. What about England itself? Is this simply a psychological reaction? The English people may, may not want to be part of the European Union, and so they're likely to vote out, vote themselves out on an emotional basis. Or will England actually be, if, he, if the European Union stands to lose, does England stand to gain 
if it walks out of the European Union? Well, I, I think so. And maybe I'm biased because I think decentralization and getting away from centralized globalist bodies is, uh, is for the benefit of humanity and everyone. But, uh, but I think it is uh, in the interests of the UK people to, at the very least, try to set their policy, economic and, and legislation and, and laws, at, at least within the borders of their own country. I mean, why go to Brussels to, to decide what their trade policies and all of that should be. So I, I think it is to their benefit. And I think a lot of British people, a lot of, uh, a lot of Brits understand this. I mean, this is, it, there's never been a great love for the European Union in England. It's just that a lot of people, eh, you know, you go along to get along. Certain business people, I'm sure, see it, uh, it being in their business interests for, uh, for Britain to be part of it. But uh, I think the average person on the street has no great love for the European Union as some sort of institution. And certainly in recent years, UKIP, the UK Independence Party, has tapped into that and has really started to galvanize opinions to make it to the point where it's at least politically feasible to hold this type of referendum. And it's it's going to be at least close. Um, I I want to be optimistic that the British people really have the choice on their plate here. I am not so optimistic that this will result in a uh, in an independence vote. But at any rate, I think it's the closest that we've been in in decades for this to really materialize. I think there is something in the air right now, especially right now with the the immigration crisis and all of that, adding to people's sense that there really is no great benefit, and there's a lot of drawbacks to being tied at the hip with all of these other countries. Uh-huh. I've got an article here from Zero Hedge, and the headline is, Europe is burning. Nigel Farage <laughs> slams Merkel's migration mailstorm. All right. A little purple prose there, maybe. Um, from, from ISIS marches in Germany to refugees doing normal manly things to women in Sweden, UKIP, the United Kingdom Independent Party, Leader Nigel Farage confronts Angela Merkel uh, and her peers in the European Parliament over the dreadfully misguided immigration policies. According to Nigel Farage, Europe is burning. And and just like the central bankers of the world, their solution is insanely simple-minded. Europe isn't working. So we must have more Europe. The only hope he uh, he has uh, in the British referendum, showing is a British referendum, showing the rest of the world it's possible to take back control of its own borders. First off, what's your take on Nigel Farage? I'll take these questions one at a time rather than giving you a list of them. Well, in terms of anti-European voices in the EU Parliament, I don't think I've seen anyone who is more stringently and 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 cogently and consistently. Uh, articulating the anti-globalist, anti-EU perspective. So he uh, he's always quite entertaining when he talks on those things. And I think generally he is correct. Europe is burning, um, both in the in the sense of uh, all of the social and, and uh, chaos and, and cultural chaos that's happening with the immigration and all of that. But also economically, of course, we've seen, you know, banking destabilization in Italy coming back in the last couple of months. And of course, Greece continues to be a festering wound in the uh, European economy. So in a lot of senses, he's quite correct on that. In terms of the UKIP generally, I'm, I would say I'm not politically uh, excited and aligned with them because I think that uh, on a lot of other issues, they just tend to be hardline conservatives in the negative sense in terms of we need more, you know, more of a police state at home, which, of course, I'm not in favor of. But in terms of the EU policies, I think he artic- anti-EU ideas, he articulates them quite well. 
Do you think the Muslims can be assimilated into a non-Muslim culture like the like Europe? Can they be assimilated, or they, is this? You know, well, you get the question. You understand? What I'm yeah, saying. yeah. Of course, I do. Um, yes. Uh, well, I, it really is a question that that has a history to it. It doesn't. It doesn't come in a vacuum. And I, I, we've seen this articulated in the last couple of decades by people like Samuel P. Huntington, Huntington, who came out with, of course, with the uh, the uh, Clash of Civilizations, and that I think is the central organizing principle that uh, global geopolitics is working on in this era in the same way that the Cold War was the central global, uh, central principle that global geopolitics was working on, you know, pre, pre-Soviet collapse. And I think that's been consciously planned, and, st- and, and we've seen this steer towards that. So we have to understand this question in the context of, at the very least, the last century of manipulation and stacking of the deck and the fostering of radical Muslim ideologies by the West and the Western intelligence agencies for the purposes of of keeping nationalist movements in check in various parts of the world. That was a very big part of the, the mid-20th century strategy, trying to keep pan-Arab nationalists like uh, Nasser in Egypt down uh, by creating and fomenting the Muslim Brotherhood and other uh, organizations like that, or, of course, propping up the Saudi royal family with their radical, crazy Wahhabi uh, Islam as a way of being uh, a, a sort of controllable element within the Middle East that would be pliable to U.S. interests. So we've, we have to understand that question in the context of this all being fomented for decades and decades and decades, at the very least, again, going back at least a century when you look at the British occupation of uh, Palestine and others, so other places of that ch- chessboard. So once we understand that context, it is a good question. I mean, at this point, with those types of radical ideologies having been fostered and fomented and and really propagated, they have gotten to a point where they do have attraction with a lot of the public, uh, for example, in the Middle East, in the Arab nations. Um, And it does become a question, are these these cultures compatible and how how do they, I mean, can they merge? Can they assimilate? How does this take place? Can they even tolerate? Can they even tolerate? Yes. And and I think obviously there are certain sec- sectors and sections of Islam that which it clearly is not compatible and they, they can't, you know, tolerate uh, uh, you know, non-believers. But again, I think we have to understand this in the sense that this has been fostered and really inculcated. And what the question ultimately is, what do you do with that? I mean, once uh, once we realize there has been a concerted, coordinated effort that goes to uh, even to the micromanagement level, I think people don't understand the level to which this works. For example, people may know that there is a deep tie between U.S. and Pakistani intelligence so that the ISI has often been seen as an adjunct of the CIA. But people don't know the extent to which, for example, the Pakistani ISI and the Pakistani government, which has fostered fostered the Taliban, really, by creating all of these radical madrasas in, in Afghanistan and, and Pakistan that creates these, these fervent you know, Muslims that want to kill. They, they use teaching materials that, for example, teach children how to read or how to count by counting bombs, counting guns, counting things like this, like things that obviously are inculcating a, a sort of militaristic attitude. And those textbooks are actually being paid for by funds from USAID. 
when you start looking at the, the way that s entire societies have been inculcated with this, it, it really does change the emphasis of where is the root of this problem. And we do see time and time again in a lot of these countries where these types of terrorist attacks that are going on actually generally are turned towards against the, 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 the Arab countries themselves. I mean, we've seen, for example, Iraq torn apart with, with violence, obviously, Afghanistan torn apart with violence, Syria torn apart with violence. Generally, this is aimed internally more so than it is externally. And so we see local populations often very much against these types of radical Islamic groups. But then they gain popularity when the Americans and uh, whoever else, NATO, comes in and starts bombing their population to shreds because, hey, these guys are against them. So I think there's a much com more complicated geopolitical strategy going on here that we have to take into account the full context to understand the question. The short answer is there certainly are Muslim fundamentalist crazy radicals who will not tolerate other cultures. But I think the deeper question is, well, how, how is that being inculcated and what can we do to stop that? Well, either, yeah, I, what can we do to stop it? Can we stop it? I mean, some of these people, even if this culture has been artificially created, the radicals, it's been around long enough now where it has a life of its own. It has a history of its own. It's not something new where somebody walks in the door and says, hi, I'll give you some money if you act like a radical. Now we've got your dad was a radical and your grandfather was a radical and maybe your great grandfather was a radical and where are you? You're going to be radical too. Um, this is not this culture has enough history now where it won't be easily given up. When I think when I look at this, I'm reminded definition classic definition of a race. Excuse me, of a nation is one race of people speaking one language within fixed borders. Uh, there might be a little bit more to it, but the idea is a nation historically was fairly homogenous. When we invite immigrants from a culture that we have reason to believe is not going to assimilate, is this an attempt to create so much internal abuse, uh, 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 destabilization within the country that the country is no longer a viable threat to, say, the New World Order. I mean, if the United States right. gets enough immigration, right. if they have enough immigration and the culture is radically changed, we can fight with the guy across the street. We don't have time to fight with somebody in Brussels. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I see what you're saying, and I agree with that, because I think that this is about balkanization. And that's yeah. kind of a strange thing when we're looking at the idea of globalization. Clearly, they just want people getting more and more used to regional and then sort of global culture or whatever. I think it works in an opposite way. They want to atomize people as much as possible so that they're fighting each other as much as possible, uh -huh. exactly as you say, so that they can't effectively fight these kind of overarching institutions, which really are, you know, puppeteering this and, 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 and controlling, and, you know, entire entire continents, economic and military policies at this point, like in Europe. So I think you're right. I mean, there's, there's kind of a way in which the balkanization creates the, the, the possibility for further globalization. And it's, although they seem like opposite forces, I think they work hand in hand. Yeah, and you have to wonder what are people's motives. For example, what motivated Germany's uh, Angela Merkel to encourage immigration to Middle East refugees? What did she really believe? What really moved her? Is she doing something because she thought this is good for business? We're going to get cheap labor. 
Hooray, we're going to get cheap yeah. labor and Germany can make more money? Mm-hmm. Or did she understand this is going to cause trouble that will essentially fracture you, uh, at least Germany and, and ultimately Europe also into – it'll balkanize them just as you're describing. What motivated Angela Merkel? Well, I, I don't I, – I can't read Merkel, Merkel's mind, so I don't know what motivated her, but I do know that at this point, certainly by now, I don't think any politician in Europe can claim that they don't understand the effects that these policies are having or the types of cultural tensions that are coming to the fore now. So at this point, I mean, further pushing towards this – this uh, this agenda is clearly uh, being done with the full in knowledge and intention that it will cause further strife and further further uh, balkanization. As I say, more people getting atomized, getting into their little groups, and and fighting with each other rather than fighting against the uh, the, the bigger forces out there. Exactly. Let's take a break for some commercials. We'll be back with James Corbett from the Corbett Report. C O R B E T T Report dot com. Please stay tuned. Uh, talking about various geopolitical issues or uh, 
anecdotes, or here's one that is not even perhaps an anecdote or an issue. It's maybe just a conspiracy theory of my own creation. Here's a headline from Bloomberg. Saudi Arabia plans $2 trillion mega fund for for post-oil era. Saudi Arabia is getting ready for the twilight of the oil age by creating the world's largest sovereign wealth fund for the kingdom's most prized assets. Um, what they're going to do, $2 trillion public investment fund to help wane Saudi Arabia off oil. Saudis will sell shares in Aramco's parent company and transform the oil giant into an industrial conglomerate. Right. However, the International Monetary Fund, a study in 2014, noted that there were many examples of failure by countries trying to reduce reliance on energy production and few successes. The reason that strikes me as interesting is it indicates that Saudi Arabia is trying to implement a strategy that's been tried in the past and usually failed. So I'm wondering why are the Saudis trying a strategy known to usually fail. Do they think this time it's different and they can pull it off? Well, I mean, I don't know if if it's that so much as I don't think they have a choice. And Uh it's not just to do with the the commodity route, the oil route that we've seen over the last year and a half, two years of the falling oil prices. I think that's kind of the kick in the butt that got them towards this and thinking about this. But I think that they see that the the writing is on the wall, especially after the Paris uh, Climate Conference last December. And now, of course, everyone is trying to reorient. Now that we're moving towards the post-carbon future, like it or not, hook or or by crook, the $90 trillion of energy investments that are going to be made over the next couple of decades to try to get people off of oil in various harebrained schemes that probably won't work when we're talking about wind energy or things of that that nature. But anyway, that's where the money is moving. That's where the markets are moving. And I think the Saudi Arabia recognizes that whether it's you know, a decade from now or two decades from now or three decades from now, at a certain point, uh, oil is not going to be the steady uh, source of revenue that it is for them right now. And uh, that's a big concern for the Saudi royal family, which essentially exists by bribing its population. Saudi Arabia, of course, doesn't have income tax. It uh, has very generous social programs, which are the basis for its ability to maintain control over the country. And when that gravy train comes to an end, I don't think the royal family is under any any delusions about uh, what, you know how much the public would love and, and respect them, even if they weren't putting that bread and butter on the table. So I think this is more of a CYA kind of maneuver. They have to do this. And uh, this is the only strategy that that uh, that they have up on, on available to them. And it's not it's not a theoretically. I mean, it's not a terrible strategy. It's uh, it's something that they can do. Start transferring the the ownership away and start investing the the money uh, into other things and try to diversify. It's it's really the the best option they have on the table. I think. Do you think that this option? is really being advanced with the idea of providing some benefit to the nation Saudi Arabia? Or could it be another one of the kick in the pants or kicks in the pants as they're considering the possibility of being overthrown in a political revolution and wondering how do they get their money and their wealth out of Saudi Arabia? Uh, And what I'm wondering about, are they saying, oh, we're going to set up a $2 trillion fund here to take care of all you little people? And are they really just figuring out a way how to move their money offshore and get rid of Aramco and perhaps protect 
their fortune by putting it into European banks or wherever? Does that seem plausible, yes. or is that oh, too much of a conspiracy? I'm sure that is part of this. Absolutely, um, they are. They're looking how how do you liquefy and and uh, and get that money out of there? So yeah, I'm sure that there's a lot of that that goes on, and it has been going on. It is going on. We know actually a little bit about that because we know from the Panama Papers, for example. Um, there was uh, one of the documents in there was about the the king of Saudi Arabia who apparently used a shell company purchased through this Mossack Fonseca uh, law firm to purchase some uh, real estate in London, for example. Again, on the big scheme of things, not exactly the most, you know, world-shaking corruption, but I think at least a, a window, a peek into what the Saudi, Saudi royal family is doing with their money and how they're moving it out of the country. Uh, again, I'm sure this process has been going on for a while, and will accelerate with the, uh, the liquefaction of uh, Aramco and the, the creation of this $2 trillion slush fund. I've got an article from the AFP uh, from about 10 days ago. Greece, Greece wants international monetary fund explanations over WikiLeaks <laughs> report. I mean, WikiLeaks, is there any such thing as secrecy in the Internet age? Uh, yes, uh, I think so, but only for the people who, you know, are the connected cronies who can afford it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, even if nothing else, can you imagine WikiLeaks as a, as a grand extortion operation? I mean, even if it is what it claims to be, I mean, it, it certainly has the goods on a lot of people, and it would be the perfect way to extort money out of out of governments or out of people that, uh, that have that money to slush around and don't want certain secrets to come to light. So or, even if WikiLeaks is what it says it is, you know that there are other groups out there that are doing this type of thing for the for the monetary incentive. So uh, so again, if you can afford it, if you have the right connections, I'm sure there are ways to keep your secrets. But uh, for the uh, the average guy, uh, probably not. Here's, uh, the article continues again. Greece wants IMF explanations over WikiLeaks report. Greece on Saturday demanded explanations from the International Monetary Fund after WikiLeaks said the lender. Uh, sought a crisis event to push the indebted nation, that's Greece, into concluding talks over its reforms. Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras said he would call, uh, would write to International Monetary Fund Chief Christine, uh, Christine Lagarde and reach out to European leaders after WikiLeaks published what it said was a transcript of a teleconference in which IMF officials complained that Athens only moves decisively when faced with the peril of default. An event was therefore needed to drive the threat of default and get the Greeks to act. The nature of such event was not specified. The Greek government reacted strongly to the report, saying it wanted the IMF to clarify its position. The IMF <laughs> did not comment on leaks. It said it didn't comment on leaks or supposed reports of internal discussions my question in all of this is what sort of event do you suppose uh, members of the IMF might be talking about? They said, we need an event to get <laughs> to make the Greeks toe the line. Are they talking about something like Pearl Harbor or the Gulf of Tonkin or maybe 9-11? Is that the kind of event they're talking about, or what do you think? It certainly could be something along those lines, for, but it certainly could be an economic event. I mean, maybe yeah, they were looking for some sort of economic 9-11. But yes, I mean... Yeah, again, this shouldn't be surprising to, to our regular listeners. We've talked about it a lot of times. I mean, who benefits in the wake of any type of 
scare security or economic. It is the, the people who come along that want to centralize more power for themselves. So it shouldn't be surprising at all to find that the IMF's internal deliberations are all about how we can basically force that sense of crisis in Greece in order to get them to come to the table. What do you think motivates people to want the kind of power to be able to run a global economy, a one-world government? I mean, isn't this, don't you have to be really a little bit crazy? If you're in a position where you've got enough wealth, where you have enough wealth to be part of a conspiracy to establish one-world government, isn't that enough to go buy an island someplace and uh, jet around the world or do whatever you want to do? Why take the aggravation of trying to manage the affairs of several billion people? You get my point here? I certainly do. Yeah. No, I, I, I very much take your point because you and I, and I think I imagine most of the people listening to this conversation, don't have a desire to rule or control right. other people or manipulate them or use them yeah. as pawns or see uh -huh. the world in that way. The average person just wants to, you know, okay, I'll do my nine to five. And then at the weekend, you know, have, have a bowling and beer party or something. You know, that's, that's what the average person wants because that's the average, the way the average person interprets the world. For high functioning psychopaths, it really is about trying to control everything. It is about that con sense of control. And if you can control the entire society, hey, right down to the individual level, hey, all the better. And at the most charitable, you could imagine that there are people who are involved in these types of activities who have the mindset uh, that they truly believe that they can engineer a society that will be better for more people. And they believe as long as they're in charge and they get to control it, they can create the perfect society. There are people like that in that system. Um, I think the ones at the very top probably just desire the control itself. But I see why the, the sort of meddling technocrats and people who have the technical know-how to bring this about probably do believe they are working in the best interests of society, like, a, say, a B.F. Skinner or someone like that, who did a lot of research into how individual humans can be controlled and shaped and their beliefs and opinions formed and, and how you can get people's behaviors regulated in, in certain ways. I'm sure he did believe that the ultimate goal of this was to create a perfect society where everyone's happy. But uh, it's a nightmare society to you and me and most people who just want to be left alone. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, let's move to Brazil. Is the entire continent of South America deeply immersed in economic and political trouble, or is the problem mostly only with Brazil and maybe Venezuela? All of South American trouble or just Brazil and Venezuela? Well, I mean, certainly at the moment it's centered on Brazil, and Venezuela is, of course, also there. Argentina, not looking so good either, um, and their new pr president has just been implicated in this Panama Papers leak as well, so maybe some further political destabilization there. Um, Bolivia uh, still not 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 performing particularly well. Um, yeah, I think that there is a sort of malaise in South America generally, but it is certainly concentrated on Brazil right now. That's where the fireworks are happening, um, and there aren't a lot of bright spots on that. Uh, a, a decade ago, Brazil was was soaring, and there was a lot of positivity and happiness, and uh, let the good times flow largely on the back of an increasing trade relationship with China. There was definitely that, uh, that part of the calculus. But uh, that's definitely disappeared, obviously, with the slowdown of China. And there doesn't seem to be anything on the horizon that's likely to take its place anytime soon. The only kind of good news that uh, Brazil, uh, economies like Brazil is getting is that 
Well, they might actually there might actually be an impeachment and and uh, and removal from office of Rousseff, which means the change in government could potentially bring a bit more business friendly uh, policies to 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 the table. And on the back of that kind of well, this could create a better thing in the long run. We've seen the re- the real actually rallying in recent days, but I mean that's the type of you know smoke mirrors hope and change nonsense that uh, that Brazil's economy is resting on right now. If there's a political meltdown in Brazil, will other South American countries be dragged down, or will most of them get by without more trouble than they already have? Well, Brazil is obviously a central part of the South American economy. It's uh, it's an extremely integral part of that. So. I mean, they can't. There can't be a huge destabilization and shakeup in Brazil without it affecting its major trading partners there in Latin America. It is going to have an effect, and it's not a good effect. Obviously, it's a, it's an anchor. It's a drag down on the rest of the the economy at a time when, as I say, I mean, Argentina, Venezuela, there there isn't exactly a happy happy spot right now in South America that would that would be able to pick up the slack. So, it's uh, it's a downward a downward uh, pull for sure. Is there a happy spot anywhere on the globe where we can sit back and say, well, you know, if I could move here, then I'd be, uh, everything will be all right. The rest of the world can go to heck, but uh, if I could get to this one place, I'd be happy. I wish that I could say that. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, there is nothing that comes to mind at this point. Uh, There are all, uh, I don't want to say it's all doom and gloom, but there are certainly potential uh, weak points in every every region of the globe right now, and all the weak points add up. Uh, they're, they're cumulative, and they affect each other, and they influence and add to each other. So it does not create a very good system. I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to be scaremongering here, but obviously this is a house of cards, right? Yeah. And the, once the winds start to blow, it, it doesn't matter if you're the strongest card in that house or if you're in the best position in the house. When the house collapses, you know, there's not there's not a lot you can do about it. And again, I'm not saying it's going to be an overnight Mad Max collapse kind of thing, but I'm just saying that we're not built on a, a solid foundation of a, a, a stable, a solid mon- monetary supply and, you know, happy, uh, productive economy. So I don't think that there's any place in the world that, that uh, that's looking positive at the moment. The only thing that I can think of is, some of the lower rungs on the ladder in some of the nations, for example, in Central Asia or in Africa, where China has been investing its infrastructure, building money in the last few uh, last decades, certainly, those have a lot of room for growth. So relatively, they may be boosted a little, but it won't amount to much in terms of the overall uh, economy of the world. All right, James, I think we'll let it go at that point. No place to run to, which means you've got to stand and fight where you are. We're out of time, folks. I want to thank all of you for listening, and I want to thank James Corbett from the Corbett Report for being on the program again. Always a pleasure, always interesting, always educational. Uh, we'll be back. Melody and I will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, with good Lord bless you, me, Melody, James Corbett, Frank the producer. Bye-bye. All night I work all day to pay the bills I have to pay. Ain't it sad? Still there never seems to be a single penny left for me. That's too bad. In my dreams.
found that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU-band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
Good evening, all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is Wednesday, April 27th, 2016, and it's about eight and a half minutes. Uh, well, no, it's about seven and a half minutes after 8 p.m. Pacific time. If that's when it is where you're at, we are, in fact, live, and I'm trying to... Uh, Oh, gosh. Check something out here. All right. It'll just have to wait to the break. Too bad. Anyway, it is uh, Wednesday. You can call in 800-932-1980. That'll get you on the air. You can also go to the website and go to the chat room. That is uh, located over on the left-hand side. You'll see a link. Click it. Pick a name. Pick a password. You're in there can also contact me directly through Yahoo Instant Messenger. AVRN Talk is my screen name. My uh, email is also on the website. You'll see that if you'd like to utilize that. Now, I guess uh, we'll get to the announcements that uh, you have all probably already heard, which is that Ted Cruz, the loser, okay? This guy has no mathematical, okay? No mathematical, you know, path to the White House, to the nomination, to nothing. Yet he's out there picking a vice president. You know, how lame is that, man? I mean, what what exactly do you think you're doing? I mean, you can't even win, you know, the the nomination, but he did it anyway, and the reason why is because he owes her. You know, he owes her, or she owes him. I don't know which way it goes, but here's uh, something that I had told you all long ago, and I've told you several times. But now here is a story on CBS News. Why did Ted Cruz's pack? give half a million dollars to Carly Fiorina's back. Gee, I wonder why. The Federal Election Commission wants to know, too, because they asked Ted Cruz's super PAC to explain why it gave half a million dollars to another super PAC, supporting one of his Republican rivals. That seems like a fair question. Huh, Ted, why? 
According to, oh, but I'm sure Ted will say, well, that's not me. That's my super PAC. I don't have anything to do with that. I'm an innocent bystander. Just like the million dollars he got from Goldman Sachs said, well, oh, gee, I forgot to, no, I forgot about that. You know, million here, million there. Who can keep track of all these millions? I forgot about that and, uh, you know, reporting it and all. But uh, off he goes. He doesn't get in any trouble for it. According to the financial disclosures from June, keep the promise, one, or I, one of four separate committees backing Cruz gave half a million dollars to Carly for America, the political action committee supporting Carly Fiorina. Super PACs are legally allowed to give money to other super PACs. They are only prohibited from donating directly to any political campaign. But... It is unusual for one of these groups to give money to an opponent, especially when the candidate it supports is still in the race. See, this was a while back. Keep the promise I made the donation in June to Ms. Fiorina at the same time because we thought she had important things to say. <clears throat> that weren't being heard, including her poignant and effective criticism of Mrs. Clinton at the time, the likely Democratic nominee, Kellyanne Conway, president of Keep the Promise I Told, I, Keep the Promise I, told CBS News in an email. So, she had a message that wasn't getting out. Nobody was listening to her. But, but by giving her money, that makes us listen. Why, look, she has half a million more dollars. We better listen to her. However, she added, we are all in for Ted Cruz for president, as our current activities demonstrate. And we'll continue to support him and his message all the way to the White House. <laughs> Delusional girl there. The donation came before Fiorina's well-received performance in the two top uh, the two GOP debates helped boost her to the top of the Republican polls. Are you kidding me? You see, you know, here's the thing: the top of the Republican polls. I don't think she's won one delegate anywhere. How do you get to the top of the polls and nobody voted for you? Oh, I guess this is a Ted Cruz poll or something, where you don't need any people to win. You just uh, say you did. Oh, look, I wrote it down. We took a poll, and uh, you won. Whee! There weren't any people voting or anything, but we said you won, so you won. You're at the top of the polls. Both the Cruz, now listen, both the Cruz and the arena campaigns decided to decline any comment, as did the arena super PAC. The cruise pack raised just over $11 million by the end of June, nearly all of it from a Robert Mercer, a Wall Street hedge fund manager. Do you see how super PACs work, folks? 
you get some scumbag like this Robert Mercer, who has some political agenda, who has tons of money he's stolen from all of you investors out there, and he's decided, well, I'm just going to make a super PAC. It isn't really me. It's a super PAC. And then I'm going to give it to whoever. And then, oh, I bet you maybe he directed them. Hey, you know that uh, 11 million bucks I gave you? Give half a million over to the dog-faced girl from, uh, you know, who ruined Hewlett-Packard. The $500,000 donation to Carly for America is the largest expenditure to date. The remainder of the 36169 it spent went to polling research and legal fees. So they haven't spent anything. The FEC says the letter it sent to keep the promise is a fairly common request. The PAC is being asked to provide the commission with adequate purpose of disbursement. Translation, it needs to do a better job explaining what the money is for. According to FEC guidelines, this extra step is not always required, but can be when the purpose of an expenditure is unclear. Yes, this is very unclear. Don't you think this is unclear? I mean, if we're going to be upfront and, you know, be honest, I think this is unclear because, let's see, you're running for the nomination, she's running for the nomination, you're supposedly opponents, and you're funding her campaign. Why is that? Could it be that Ted Cruz got caught boinking one of Carly's uh, campaign workers? Could that be it, Ted? Is that it? Did you get caught with your thing somewhere it shouldn't have been, and now you had to pay $500,000 in hush money? Is that it? Just asking. Anyway, here's an example. A PAC says it paid a certain amount of money for supplies and cut a check to Office Depot. Well, that would be okay. That's, that's sufficient, okay? Supplies to check the Office Depot. Okay, this this is probably supplies, you know, office supplies and stuff. All right, we get it. Yeah, that's good enough. But if the organization gave money for supplies to Joe Blow from Kokomo, maybe Joe Blow is the group's treasurer. That would be considered not sufficient explanation, and the FEC would want to know more. What kind of supplies? Yeah. So there you go. And uh, keep the promise as until October 21st to respond. That'll be interesting on the explanation on why exactly did you give half a million dollars to a competitor? I'm telling you, man. You know, look, hey, you know, somebody in the chat room earlier today said, gee, you're uh you're starting to sound more and more like a Trump supporter. Well, I suppose I am. Uh you know, Kasich it really ain't got nothing to talk about. The guy is just a loser from Ohio and you know, I mean, he's clearly in there just as a spoiler. He's just in there to try to siphon as many votes away from anybody as he can. He doesn't have any chance of becoming nominated. I mean, even in a broker convention. I mean, give me a break. 
Who is going to say, yeah, that nobody from Ohio who hasn't won one election anywhere except in Ohio, yeah, let's pick him as our national candidate to go against Hillary Clinton. Sure, that's a great idea. Who, who, nobody's going to do that ever, even in a brokered you know, convention. Kasich has no chance. So what's he doing there? He is simply attempting to siphon votes. That's all. Poor Teddy's too stupid to realize that, you know, most of the votes being siphoned off for Kasich aren't coming from anybody who is going to vote for Trump. They're coming from somebody who might have voted for Cruz, but I think I'll vote for Kasich. Because do you really think anybody who was going... Well, I I don't know. You know, I would have voted for Donald Trump if that that fireball Kasich wasn't in the race. Really? Do you think people are doing that? So you know what? Kasich isn't taking votes away from Trump. He's taking them away from Cruz. Good plan, Teddy. Yeah. Hey, one more reason not to have you as commander-in-chief. You're an idiot. And then... Then, I know how I'll fix things. I know how I'll make things better. As somebody put in the chat room, I'll have my vice president to be Carly, the destroyer of companies. Yay! Folks, you need to look into her history. But let's get over here to Ted. See, Ted sent me another email. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know who's writing his crap, but they 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 must not realize what a liar they are making Ted Cruz out to be. I mean, just from the start of this email. I wanted you to be the first to know. Oh, that's because, see, me and Ted, we're like pals, right? At least according to his emails, we're pals. He sends me personal emails and everything. It's really, you know, we're such friends. You know, I just really want to send him money. Not. But anyway, he wanted me to be the first to know. So now I know. It's my honor and privilege to introduce you to Carly Fiorina, the next vice president of the United States. Okay. To introduce me to Carly Fiorina. Because I'm brain dead, I live under a rock, and I never saw any of the debates. I have no idea who Carly Fiorina really is. I, I have no idea who she even is. I've never heard that name in my life before. Uh, I, I thank you for introducing me to her. Boy, wow, that's great. The next vice president of the United States. That is absolutely delusional. Okay? Ted has no path to the nomination, all right? But hey, Carly and I are about to go on stage to make this important announcement officially. But I wanted you. Now listen, one of my closest and most loyal supporters to hear it from me first. <laughs> Come on, man. Really? 
Okay, first off, I don't know who Carly Fiorina is because I, I live under a stone or something. And then uh, I sent him an email telling him what a liar I think he is, and, and but I'm he wants me, one of his closest and most loyal supporters, to hear it from him first. Well, even though I read it on the Drudge Report first, but I mean, hey, that this is almost first, right? As you get to know Carly, like I have, well, I doubt that's ever going to happen, but I mean, I know her well enough to know she is a menace, okay? A menace. I would, na- I would not have her running my, I wouldn't have her running my, my lemonade stand, okay? I know you will agree. That she is the right person and ready to accept this enormous responsibility on behalf of the American people. That enormous responsibility, yeah. Well, I think I think there's a lot of people out here taking on that enormous responsibility of standing around waiting for you to drop dead, Ted. I do. I think there's a lot of people out here, you know, waiting for that to happen. That enormous responsibility, because really, folks, let's not let's not kid ourselves. The vice president's job—that's it. Sit around and wait and see if the president drops dead. Look, the vice president is like a relief pitcher. Okay, you sit in the dugout until the real pitcher screws up. Yeah, they don't make them actually die in uh, baseball, but, you know, hey, the president, bigger, better job, you know, so you got to die in order to get the uh, second team in there, should I say, the relief squad. Anyway, Carly is a leader, <laughs> a leader who understands that power never has and never will come from the government. It comes from the people. A leader who knows the principles of the Declaration and the Constitution because she was there when they were written. Ah, no, no, no. Because she has lived them. Huh? Okay, anyway, a life dedicated to the dignity of work. Of our right to pursue our wildest aspirations. And to help others do the same. Well, I don't know about that. Uh... Hmm. Dignity of work? Okay. Right to pursue our wildest aspirations and help others do the same. I don't think anybody at uh, Hewlett-Packard or even Compact thinks that uh, she helped them pursue their wildest aspirations, unless their wildest aspirations were to hit the unemployment line. I mean, yeah, if that was their aspirations, then Carly's their girl. Okay? Carly is a fighter, a fighter who terrifies Hillary. Well, look at her. I mean, come on. I mean, I'm I'm somewhat terrified looking at her, too. And she will do the same to our enemies. Hmm, now whose enemies might they be? Are those Ted's personal enemies or, like, my enemies? Oh, no, that would be Ted. Carly will fight for the American people with an unbreakable purpose of protecting every one of their rights and ensuring we 
hand our children and grandchildren a better America than the one before us today. And here's where it really goes south, folks. Carly has a record of accomplishment. (laughs) Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. Yeah, a record of both personal and professional accomplishment. Carly was the first woman to lead a Fortune 50 business right into the ground. Oh, well, he he left that into the ground part out, but lead a a Fortune 50 business. And she did it during the worst technology recession in 25 years. Carly saved, now listen to this lie here, folks. Carly saved 80,000 jobs and grew the company to 160,000 jobs. No, she didn't. What she did was she bought Compact, doubled the size of the company, doubled the debt, doubled everything, and brought them both to their knees. That's what she did until the board of uh, Hewlett-Packard, demanded she leave. They gave her $21 million to hit the bricks. Get out. We'll pay you to get out. Yeah. With Carly fighting alongside me, I'm more energized than ever to win this nomination, defeat Hillary Clinton, and reignite liberty in America. Are you with us? Today, more than ever, at this pivotal moment, I need you to know, I need to know, if you will stand with Carly and me to defeat Donald Trump and capture our party's nomination. Well, you see, they have to capture it because they can't win it. And he's not kidding. That is what he plans to do, to go to the nomination and monkey around with his insider buddies and steal the nomination. See, Ted doesn't understand that if he actually succeeds in his plan, he's going to create a revolution in this country. No kidding, man. Trump has been killing these people in elections. The last five states, every state, you know what? Here, And yeah, I am sounding more of a Trump supporter, but it's less support than it is just just the way it is. It's just the facts. What can I tell you? The last five states, and, and all in one day, okay? The last five states, just yesterday, he won every district in every state. That's impressive, folks. Every district in every state? Wow. And guess what? Not one of the states did he win by less than 60%. And there's three guys in the race, man. Three guys in the race. Hey, even if it was just two people, 60% is is a good win, man. But when you got three people in the race and you're getting 60% of the vote and you didn't lose one district in five states, And somebody's going to say, well, I don't know, maybe we ought to pick somebody else. Really? (laughs) Good golly, man, come on. Well, I'm going to start this because this is really good, and you need to hear it, and you need to pass it on, and I'll put the link in the the chat room, and you should come and get it. As a matter of fact, I'm not only going to do that, I am going to... I am going to send this out, and I rarely do this, and I'm sorry for those of you that signed up for the Yahoo uh, group. 
you know, you probably expect emails all the time or something, and I just don't do it. Uh, you know, if I don't have anything that I think you need to see, I just don't send you anything. But this you need, because this is well done. And it really does destroy the Ted Cruz eligibility question. The debate over whether or not Senator Ted Cruz is eligible for the U.S. presidency is about to end. It has now been confirmed that Senator Ted Cruz is neither a U.S. natural-born citizen or a legal U.S. citizen. According to all relative legal citizenship documents available at present, at present, Senator Ted Cruz was born Rafael Edward Cruz, a legal citizen of Canada, on December 22, 1970, and maintained his legal Canadian citizenship from birth until May 14, 2014. That's 43 years he kept that. Okay? 43 years. When we come back, We'll get to the rest of it because, oh, yeah, there's more. So we'll take a break, and we'll be back in a few.
shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Thank you. 
back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's Wednesday, April 27, 2016, and it's about 8.41 and a half out here on the Pacific Time Coast, 800-932-1980 is the call-in number. You can go to the chat room at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com, and uh, there it is. Yahoo Instant Messenger, AVRN Talk, that's my screen name. All right, let's get back to where I was here because this is something that you really ought to, you know, like I said, I'm going to put the, uh, we'll put the link in the chat room. I'm going to send it out in the Yahoo groups, and you need to pass it around. You need to let people know. People do not understand this issue. It is a very simple issue, yet people cannot wrap their heads around it because they've been so bamboozled with BS. Oh, well, yeah, you know, if you got a mother and a, a dog that were born in the United States on a Friday, well, then you're a natural-born citizen. You know, this is all just crap. No, I'm sorry. You have to be born in one of the states of the Union. That's natural-born. Born. Boink. Mama pushed you out in one of the states of the Union. Now you are a natural-born citizen. Native-born is another term. Citizen at birth is another term. None of them are natural-born citizen. okay? That is a presidential eligibility clause. It really doesn't have anything else to do with anything. Okay? I mean, you don't have any other differences in your rights between being a native-born... A born a citizen at birth and a natural born, other than the only one that can be eligible for the presidency is natural born. Unless these dirtbags in Washington, D.C. want to finally admit to everybody, oh, well, see, we're not really operating under the United States of America anymore. We're operating under the United States. And you don't really live in a state of the union. You live in a federal district that we call a state. And we've been lying to you all these years. And I believe that's really what's going on. But they're never going to tell everybody that because everybody's going to go, come again? What? I mean, honestly, you think if they steal the nomination away from Trump, there's going to be riots? You tell everybody in the United States they've been lied to their whole life, and you don't really, we don't have any states left. Oh, we got rid of those during the Civil War. Oh, we just created military districts, and that's where you really live. We will live in one big, happy nation where we don't have any states anymore. It's all just been a facade and a lie, and we've been pulling the wool over your eyes for, well, your whole life. You don't think that's going to piss some people off? It pisses me off just knowing about it. And they haven't even admitted it yet. But they may have to. Or they're going to have to get rid of Teddy. Because Teddy's got no wiggle room left. Okay? Obama had wiggle room left because he just basically said, there ain't no records. They're all, hey, they're all sealed. You can't have any of them. 
Nobody can get to any of Obama's records, so we all just have to guess and wonder, and then he puts out this bogus piece of garbage that his kids probably put together, called it a birth certificate, and said, now, there, it's all answered. Huh. Okay. Ted doesn't even have that, okay? Because Ted's records are available. Ted's admitted to this. Ted never gave up his Canadian citizenship until he was 43 years old, for crying out loud. The Cruz campaign for the U.S. presidency has claimed that Senator Ted Cruz was a citizen at birth via his U.S. mother and a dual citizen of both Canada and the United States in 1970, and that by renouncing his Canadian citizenship in 2014, he would become eligible for the Oval Office. Well, for one thing, citizen at birth is a naturalization term, okay? It is not the same as natural-born citizen. But this writer goes on, and he explains that. There's several problems with this claim, which make the claim false. One, citizen at birth is a 14th Amendment naturalization term based on all persons born or naturalized in the United States. And, and, and remember, and Al has pointed this out in several different things. Now, and, and you need to read the Constitution and go, go check this out. In the 14th Amendment, they say the United States, okay? I'm trying to remember here because I don't have it right in front of me. It's uh, One is uh, the United States and one is, uh, well, anyways, they, they make the designation in the Constitution that when they say United States, they mean the states of the Union that are united. And when in the 14th Amendment they say the United States, they say it as an entity. United States, it is an entity. In the constitutional, in the body of the Constitution, minus the amendments, they refer to the United States as separate United States. Okay? See these word games, folks? Anyway. Uh, wherein they reside, blah, blah, blah. Senator Cruz was born in Canada, subject to the... <laughs> Senator Cruz, now listen, was born in Canada, subject to the jurisdiction of Canada. Further, any U.S. citizen by virtue of the 14th Amendment only is a citizen and not a natural-born citizen. Dual citizenship, by the way was prohibited in Canada in December 1970. When Ted Cruz was born, Canada had no such thing as a dual citizen. So you see what we're saying here, folks. If Ted Cruz was a Canadian citizen, which he was because he renounced his citizenship when he was 43 years old, Hey, you wouldn't renounce something you don't have. He had Canadian citizenship. He renounced it when he was 43 years old. However, when he was born in Canada in 1970, Canada forbid dual citizenship. You getting the picture? 
from May 22nd, 1868, until December 31st, 1946, all residents of Canada were British subjects. There was no such thing as a Canadian citizen or Canadian citizenship until January 1st, 1947. From January 1st, 1947 until February 15th, 1977, Canadian law prohibited dual citizenship. Foreign parents giving birth to a child in Canada in 1970 were forced to choose between Canadian citizenship only or citizenship in another country and to declare that with Canadian officials at the time of birth. The parents of Ted Cruz chose and declared Canadian citizenship for Rafael Edward Cruz. United States law make it possible to be legal U.S. citizen by only the following means. These, this is it, folks, unless, of course, Obama writes a, a you know, a executive order making up laws or something. A, we have natural-born citizen. Quote, as, a society, as the society cannot exist and perpetuate itself otherwise than by the children of the citizens, those children naturally flow, follow the condition of their fathers and succeed to all their rights. The country of the fathers is therefore that of the children, and these become true citizens merely by their tacit consent. Now, they're saying this comes from the natural laws understood by the founders in Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution. Now, it's been argued, but where the there, there's somebody named Vettel, and he wrote the Law of Nations, okay? And this is, this is a, a body of work that was recognized around the world at the time of the Constitution to be, look, this is the Law of Nations. This is how everyone should act. These, these are basically the rules, and everybody ascended to them. They said, yeah, this is, this is good. This guy is, you know, this, this guy's got it going on. Look it up, Vettel, V-A-T-T-E-L, Law of Nations. In Section 212, Citizens and Natives, let me read this to you. The citizens are the members of a civil society, bound to the society by certain duties and subject to its authority. They equally participate in its advantages. The natives, or natural-born citizens, are those born in the country of parents who are citizens. As the society cannot exist and perpetuate itself otherwise than by the children of the citizens, those children naturally follow the condition of their fathers and succeed to all their rights. See, it's not the law of nature, it's the law of nations. Okay? Anyway, it goes on, the society is supposed to desire this in consequence of what it owes to its own preservation, and it is presumed as a matter of course that each citizen on entering into society reserves to his children the right of becoming members of it. The country of the fathers is therefore that of the children. And these become true citizens merely by their tacit consent. We shall soon see whether 
on their coming to the years of discretion, they may renounce their right and what they owe to the society in which they were born. I say that in order to be of the country, it is necessary that a person be born of a father who is a citizen, for if he is born there of a foreigner, it will be only the place of his birth and not his country. Get it? So, at the time of the Constitution, the Founding Fathers were going, along with everybody else, you know, all the other leaders of all the other European countries, were all following Vettel. Now, some people will argue that they followed Blackstone, but they didn't. They did in some ways. And, you know, they, hey, they were forming their own government, and they could do what they wanted. But mostly, most of the Founding Fathers really did latch on to Vettel's theories much more than Blackstone. Because Blackstone was English law. English law was feudal law, okay? They didn't want to do that, obviously. Anyway, we'll go on. Native-born citizen. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof... See, Ted wasn't born in the United States, and he wasn't subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. He was subject to the jurisdiction of Canada. Our citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside, naturalized citizens, the legal act or process by which a non-citizen in a country may acquire citizenship or nationality of that country. It may be done by a statute without any effort on the part of the individual, a.k.a. anchor baby, or it may involve an application and approval by legal authorities such as consular report or birth abroad, you know, form filled in by the U.S. State Department, yada, yada, yada. So there you have it. Dual citizens are prohibited from being natural-born citizens as it pertains to Article Two requirements of the Oval Office. As the stated purpose of Article Two, natural-born citizen requirement for the Oval Office is to prevent anyone with foreign allegiance at birth from ever occupying the Oval Office. And all dual citizens at birth are born with dual national allegiance. But of course, we know... Ted Cruz was not born a dual citizen because that was not legal in Canada when he was born. Now, he may have, later on in life, in Canada, or actually, it wouldn't be in Canada, he would have to, you know, Ted, where is your naturalization papers? You getting the you getting the thing here, man? Anyway, uh, the mere condition of dual citizen at birth would be a direct violation of the known purpose and intent of the natural born citizen requirement in Article Two. The source, of course, if you want to find out, well, what do you mean the intent? How do we know? Well, a letter from founder John Jay. Okay. There's a letter from John Jay where he proposes this. He was the one. John Jay, you remember that he was the first chief justice of the Supreme Court, right? Wow, what would he know, huh? Now, Senator Ted Cruz has repeatedly stated that he was never naturalized to the United States. 
which eliminated the possibility that Ted Cruz is a naturalized U.S. citizen. Senator Ted Cruz has also documented the fact that he was not a native-born citizen of the United States, but rather a native-born citizen of Canada on December 22, 1970, who maintained his legal Canadian citizenship until May 14, 2014. See, Senator Ted Cruz has no legal U.S. citizenship documentation of any kind. He has a foreign birth certificate, and he has no naturalization papers. He couldn't have been a dual citizen because Canada didn't allow dual citizenship when he was born. And he he was seven years old before they changed that rule in Canada. You, you You see, this is what's going on here, folks? It is, well, I'll post it, I'll send it out, and hopefully you will pass it around and, you know, people will start to realize this is a bad deal. And you know what, I don't, you know, listen. The fact of the matter is, if you expect me to follow the law, then I expect you to follow the law. And if you're not going to follow the law, then don't expect me to follow the law. And you're not going to like that. It's just like, oh, really? You made some rules, huh? Oh, I can make rules, too. You're not going to like that either. The American people need to start standing up and and making clear to these criminals that, listen, okay, fine. You know what? You want to keep doing what you're doing, that's fine. We'll do what you're doing, too. We'll make our own rules. We'll disobey the law, just like you do. And you know what? You're really not going to like it. You're going to like it less than we like it. But you know what's good for you? You're not going to have to like it that, not like it that long because you'll be dead. I'm telling you, man, these people need to back off or else this is going to get real ugly and there's going to be piles of dead bodies. Serious. You know, I don't think anybody really wants that. I'm hoping nobody wants that. Of course, you know... (laughs) I, I did hear a nice term from uh, Corbett on that last uh, show there, the um, financial survival. James Corbett uh, called them high-functioning psychopaths. Yeah, that's who's running things, is high-functioning psychopaths, okay? So maybe they do want piles of dead bodies. The part they're not going to like is part of that pile is going to be them and their families, they think that's impossible because we got all the... Yeah, sure you do. I wonder how those uh, mercenaries are going to feel about you once they find out you've been paying us in worthless crap. You've been paying us in nothing but little pieces of slips of paper with ink on it that are worthless? That's what you've been paying us with? <laughs> what do you think's going to happen then? Well, hey... Anyway, thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Stay tuned. We got good stuff. My big red barn. A 47 Ford bullet holes in the door broke down motor in the front yard. I gotta have a mind to paint a plywood sign and nail it up on a knotted pine tree. Saying I was here first. This is my piece of dirt and your rambling don't rattle.
Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. governments in the Middle East. Early morning of June 5th exploded surprise attack of the Israeli Air Force on the Egyptian airplanes on the ground. 80% of the Egyptian Air Force was destroyed. By June 7th, Israel had destroyed the air forces of Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. They had control of the Sinai Peninsula, Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza. On June 8th, the USS Liberty, America's most sophisticated intelligence ship in 1967, was attacked by Israeli air and naval forces in international waters, 13 miles off of El Arish in Sinai. 34 Americans were killed. 172 were wounded. The Israeli and American governments pronounced the attack as a case of mistaken identity. Izzy Rehar was the chief of Israeli naval operations. He reported a ship had shelled the port city of El Arish. So I think around 12 o'clock, I decided to order three uh, MTBs, motor torpedo boats, from the port of Ashdod. Are you sure you can't see any kind of an identification? And all the words came back, no. If you will be sure that it is a military ship, you can't it. The first Mirage pilot radioed, oil is spilling out into the water. Another added, great, wonderful, she's burning, she's burning. And El Arish commander reported, he's hit her a lot, there's an oil slick in the water. Then headquarters asked, Menachem, is he screwing her? The next wave was Super Mysteres, with thousand pound bombs and canisters of jellied gasoline. Someone in Southern Command called, he's going down low with napalm all the time. The flight leader noted it would be a blessing if we could have iron bombs. Otherwise, our Navy's going to get here and do the sinking. A pilot interrupted. Pay attention. The ship's markings are Charlie Tango Romeo 5. There's no flag on her. And headquarters ordered, leave her. The time now is 14.12, and he says, I see CTR 5. And the minute we hear that, the Air Force stops all operations and says, all our aircraft, all our attack aircraft, please stop. I must say that at that point in time, in my mind, it was an American ship. But that opinion was not shared by the commander of the torpedo boat squadron. He believed it to be a small Egyptian freighter, the El Qasir. We told him uh, there are some doubts about identification. These doubts incredibly did not reach the commanding officer who ordered the torpedoes launched that the order did not reach the commanding officer on the bridge while you launched the torpedoes. At about the range of uh, 1,000 yards, or a little bit more than 1,000 yards, I ordered to prepare the torpedoes and uh, ordered that uh, uh, all commanders will take the uh, action of uh, firing torpedoes. 
This is the story of the attack on the liberty told by Israeli and U.S. government sources. Now, we are going to show you what really happened. The survivors of the 294-man crew of the USS Liberty will tell you their story. Left. 
And by the time I got to the door of the ward room, the skipper was on the PA system that we were under attack by unknown forces, manual battle stations. Then the regular general quarter sound alarm went off. And right across the hatch from the ward room is where I would go through, down through decks to my station. When I went through there, there was one rocket that came through and helped me to get down two floors in a dad burned hurry. When I got up off my knees down there, well, we were well under attack. And uh, the skipper again was on the uh, phone system telling auxiliary uh, radio to get word out to anyone that they could that we were under attack by unknown forces and we were in the need of help. My reporter station uh, was Radio Central. It was my responsibility to keep up you know, ship to ship or ship to shore communications. And uh, out and back in Radio Central, we were taking rounds through the bulkheads. There was a two 55-gallon drums of gasoline just outside the bulkhead on the whole one level that had caught fire from the strafing run. And that was uh, heating that outside bulkhead and peeling the paint off on the inside. There was a lot of smoke in the compartment. There's holes where we were taking rounds where the sunlight shining through and it was a real surrealistic look. I was topside fighting fires and doing other damage control work throughout the duration of the attack. At the same time I was able to observe the jets flying overhead and I also observed the American flag flying from the mast. At no time did that flag hang limp from the mast. I was one of the two signalmen on uh, the USS Liberty uh, when the ship was attacked and uh, my only job uh, during the attack was to make sure that uh, that the flag was flying so uh, every few minutes I would walk out at the signal bridge up at the mast. And fighting what fire we could with what little water I could give the people topside for the fire, uh, it was really a problem. But on the first pass they knocked out our, our ability to call for help. The one remaining antenna which I had shut down because it had some problems in the tuner is probably why it didn't get hit. I had to jury rig a you know coaxial cable directly from the transmitter to the antenna. So we were working feverishly to try to get a signal out uh, at that time, and then finally there was uh, if we were able to get a signal to the sixth fleet, and then they I was listening to monitoring that uh, communications and they said that they would be sending aircraft and so at that point we just felt overjoyed that knowing that there was going to be aircraft coming to our rescue. The initial strike by the planes on the ship commenced at about five minutes after two in the afternoon of 8 June and the attack lasted about 20 minutes. The ship was fired at from port to starboard, starboard to port, stem to stern, and there was not a single compartment above the waterline that did not have one or more direct penetration by a rocket, machine gun, and they also dropped napalm on the bridge of the ship. At 2.35 p.m., Defense Secretary Robert McNamara recalled the 12 Navy fighters that had been sent to our defense by the carrier Saratoga. At that time, no one aboard the Liberty had identified the attacking Israelis. It was one and one half hours later that our embassy in Israel first told Washington that Israelis had attacked the ship. 
possibly a U.S. Navy ship. How then did McNamara know to recall the help sent to defend the Liberty? When the ship came under attack, um, now here this general quarters, this is no drill, the ship is under attack by an identified aircraft. And there were ping-pings, we heard a lot of pinging, uh, which were bullets running across the deck, and then we heard explosions. We didn't know what was going on, but of course general quarters had sounded, so we battened down the hatches and um, we started doing what we were trained to do. We were under attack, we could hear these shells hitting the ship. The whole ship would ring, it was like you were on the inside of a huge bell and someone beating on it with a sledgehammer. The aircraft take pictures as they fire their guns. These are used for analysis of their tactics and these are used for confirmation of the damage that they've done. These pictures have never been publicly presented. Lieutenant Ennis was sitting on the deck and it was blood coming out of his mouth and his knee was, was damp, uh, he had an injury in his knee and it was blood coming out of it. Lieutenant Cough had got blown off, I think the old four level, but I come across him and he was just peppered from head to toe with shrapnel. And I covered him up with a blanket. My brother, he was sent to, um, on the bridge of the ship to find out what was, uh, who the planes were, where they came from. They had no markings. That's against the Geneva Rules of War right there. Uh, he received a silver star for his efforts. Um, he was cut down by the planes. The captain, initially after the attack, sustaining a shrapnel wounds in his knee, and somebody put a, a tourniquet around his leg, and I got coffee. I think about five cups of coffee went down the captain to keep him going. It was impressive because with all the blood loss and everything, he was, he was going all night long. A short time after the air attack had been completed, the three torpedo boats approached us from our starboard quarter at high speed and in an apparent torpedo launch attitude. The three Israeli torpedo boats fired six torpedoes at the Liberty. Because of Captain McGonagall's handling of the ship, five minutes. Intelligence base was destroyed. 25 American sailors died almost instantly. This hole on the side was uh, in excess of 40 feet in diameter. You could put your whole house in that hole. And we were right in the middle of it. We couldn't believe what we saw. You couldn't walk around that part of the deck without stepping on a piece of someone. In fact, Phil Turney and myself had found a shoe with a foot still in it. I do remember the Standby to abandon ship. Don't believe your station yet. They were getting preparing to, and then that was called off because apparently the life rafts had been shot up. So there was, if you went in the water, you were on your own. And the list on the ship was considerable. You could tell it looked like at first we were going to maybe roll over. The lights went out, and the ship rolled over, and I figured, well, sand. Side of the ship of the room I just stepped out of killed every man in my division that was in there. Um, the cell of first class that I mentioned, he was on the phone at the time just outside the door. It took off the back of his head. Um, it broke my lower left leg, both bones, it collapsed my lung, broke ribs, fractured my skull, blew out my eardrums. We took the guy down, down below, and I don't know how many runs I made up and down, you know, carrying wounded. 
And I saw all the bodies laying there on the tables that where Dr. Kiefer had been working on. I was told that he was in the officer's ward room operating on more people. 34 were killed, another 172 were wounded. The care of these people was done by myself with the assistance of two corpsmen. The corpsman did many things of minor surgery and I just had so much to do keeping people together, keeping their limbs attached to their body. We were in international waters. Uh, it was a beautiful day. You couldn't mistake us, and our, and our flag was flying for crying out loud. They were gonna, there to kill us, and it just didn't, didn't register that here they were, Israeli uh, people, and they were going to try to kill us. It was just a very, very appalling situation. several hundred miles to the north. They had somehow survived one of the most ferocious sustained attacks ever on an American ship. 34 were dead, 171 were wounded. All survivors had mental scars. There is not one single life raft. The wounded are treated. Sailors remember that they were promised help. They expected that help. In the form of phantom jets from the USS Saratoga was on its way. It never arrived. It would be the next morning, 17 hours after the attack began, before they would see an American face. Finally, the USS David and later the USS Massey came alongside the Liberty. Many of their sailors wept as they boarded the Liberty, saw open decks stained with American blood and parts of American bodies on the deck. Helicopters from the USS America arrived several hours later to medevac the most seriously wounded Liberty sailors back to that carrier. In the air attack by two squadrons of Israeli aircraft, French-built Mirage 3s and Super Mistairs, 821 rocket and cannon holes were found in the Liberty canisters of napalm that torched the ship. After the ferocious air attack, Liberty was pounded by three Israeli torpedo boats. One of their six torpedoes struck the Liberty, left a gaping hole at the water line. There were thousands of holes from armor-piercing machine gun bullets. They sank life rafts, shot at firefighters and stretcher bearers at the bridge and into the engine room.
somehow the liberty survived. And almost immediately, the second part of the outrage, the cover-up by the Israeli and the American government began. I had to go to work at midnight, and I'm trying to sleep. You know, just thinking about how we had been so shafted by our government, the Israeli government, told to shut up, no chance to talk to one another. And it just, it angered me. It really, really angered me. On the day of the attack, I tried to coordinate communications. The Israelis had taken out all of our transmitting antennas. My RMs, not knowing any better during the strafing runs, were stringing long wires so that we could get an SOS out. And thanks to them, the ones that survived, we did get an SOS out to the USS America. Without George Golden, the ship would have sunk. Had it sunk, I assume when debris washed ashore the next day, it would have been blamed on Egypt. There were many, many miracles that day. I shouldn't be here. After watertight integrity had been established and the hatch had been sailed, they reopened it as I floated by. Uh, Buddha Schnell, Bud Schnell, went down and pulled me out.
Don't write your friends back home about it. He says, in fact, when you get back home, don't even discuss it with your wife and family. And he said quite sternly, just forget it ever happened. And he says that uh, repercussions for violating these orders to silence could result in your court-martial imprisonment for violating national security or worse. helicopter uh, with Israeli markings hovering very close to us. I looked in the uh, the door of the helicopter, which was open, and I could see uh, a number of Israelis carrying automatic weapons. They had just heard that the uh, uh, Sixth Fleet had finally launched aircraft to come to our assistance, and so they just uh, they just left the scene. Helicopter gunships, I'm sure in my mind, would have picked off survivors if we'd abandoned ship. They were sent there to finish us off. The aircraft were sent to make us incommunicado so we couldn't send an SOS out. The torpedo boats were sent to sink us, and the helicopters were sent to pick off survivors so there'd be no choice. It was a perfectly executed military operation. If you look at the photographs of the Liberty after the attack, on the first strafing run, they used heat-seeking missiles that took out the tuning section of every transmitting antenna on the ship. In less than two seconds, they had taken out all our communication capability. The attack on the USS Liberty lasted as long as the attack on Pearl Harbor, about two hours. You've heard the outrageous, implausible Israeli version of the attack on Liberty told by their first-hand observers. You've heard what actually happened told by the Valiant Liberty crew. Now, hear what some of America's greatest heroes and leaders have to say. Colonel Mitchell Page was the last Marine standing after repulsing a Japanese regiment on Guadalcanal. We all know that this was in international waters. It was an unprovoked, intentional attack on a U.S. vessel with one objective, to sink it and kill all aboard unprovoked attack. I think it was dastardly. I think it was a betrayal of any friendship that we may have had with that nation. And I think that it should be exposed to the entire world and all brought out so that the whole world would know the actual truth about that, that particular day in 1967. And very widely you can see this was an American ship. And not only Navy Master Chief Bob Bush held off a Japanese advance while saving his commanding officer's life. You know, it's, it's impossible for me to figure out why maybe I would sit here and attack you when we're friends. I mean, we're they're, get, they're getting our money to buy those French airplanes. And then they turn around and attack our ship when they can see that it's our ship. It's absolutely uncalled for. Army Colonel Lou Millet led the last bayonet charge against vastly superior Chinese forces in Korea. I was in the World War II. I studied all the different types of aircraft so that when I shot at a plane, I made sure I shouldn't hit the enemy and not out. They know what those ships look like, and if they don't, I can't conceive that they don't know. I do know this. There was a criminal act. There was an act of war. It's as bad as Vietnam, allowing people to who would try to save people from 
attorney to die for nothing. Admiral Thomas Moore is the longest-serving active four-star admiral in American history. He is the only American admiral to have commanded both the Atlantic and Pacific fleets. He was head of NATO forces, served as chief of naval operations, and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for two terms. The Navy's chief fighter, the F-14 Tomcat, was named after Admiral Tom Moore. The question is, uh, if the uh, Israelis uh, thought the, the frequencies they jammed were, in fact, uh, broadcast by the Egyptian ship, uh, why did they uh, uh, jam the American frequencies? There's no question about the fact that the jamming of the Liberty frequencies was deliberate and uh, uh, was undoubtedly ordered by high authority. Since uh, a large uh, part of the caches were caused by torpedo boats, could have been uh, prevented from uh, making those attacks uh, by the aircraft that were on their way to help when they were recalled. Modern American Navy destroyers were named the Arleigh E. Burke class of destroyer. And don't know yet why we didn't protect that ship. I don't know why the Israelis would take such terrific chances. It must have been something that was very important to them to decide to attack without considering the probability of war. Recuperating from serious throat surgery, the Saratoga skipper, Joe Tully, spoke about the launch and recall of protective aircraft. I had launch ready at that time, 12 aircraft, conventionally armed, and I immediately launched them. And to my surprise, the Americans did not launch. About the same time, uh, a message came from... Um, Rear Admiral Larry Geis, who was the carrier division commander, and who was not the officer in tactical command, but who was senior to me, who had somehow been given tactical command, or assumed it, ordering the strike aircraft to return to Saratoga. And it was the first time that the hotline, the red line between Washington and Moscow, had been activated, and the message from the United States to Chairman Kosygin at the time was advise General Nasser that the American planes are going to be launched to determine what the status of the Liberty was. I have spent a large part of my life flying over the oceans and identifying ships. And this ship was perhaps the easiest ship to identify that was uh, listed in the United States Navy. Equipped with antenna from bow to stern, pointing in every direction. It reminds one of a large, vigorous lobster. And he looked 
that made it extremely easy to recognize. And so I will never, never buy the idea that uh, the pilots thought this was uh, some other ship. And it appeared from the ferocity of the attack that the intent of the attackers was to sink the ship. Maybe they hoped to have no survivors so that they would not be held accountable for the attack after it occurred. We didn't know who was attacking us. They didn't know who was attacking us. Well, I don't know how Washington can say, don't go because they're friends of ours. So that's the thing that's always bothered me right there. I never myself accepted the Israeli purported explanation. Um, accidents don't occur through repeated attacks by surface vessels and by aircraft. It obviously was a decision taken pretty high up in, on the Israeli side because it involved combined forces. Um, the ship was flying an American flag. Even if it had been unidentified from a, an, an Israeli point of view, uh, it was a reckless thing for them to do. Suppose it had been a Soviet ship. That could produce very large problems indeed. George Ball, the brilliant and courageous Undersecretary of State at the time of the 67 war, wrote about the attack on the Liberty subsequently. He said, The ultimate lesson of the Liberty attack was that it had far more effect on policy in Israel than in America. Israel's leaders concluded that nothing they might do would offend the Americans to the point of reprisal. If America's leaders did not have the courage to punish Israel for the blatant murder of American citizens, it seemed clear that their American friends would let them get away with almost anything. this in the society uh, for the 
benefit of the American people. And as a matter of fact, uh, in many cases, the press uh, uh, supported the Israeli confession. Future Judge Advocate General of the Navy, Rear Admiral Merlin Starring, was given less than 24 hours to review the 600-page Court of Inquiry report. In the course of my career as a Navy lawyer, I have been called upon to review and take actions upon uh, hundreds of investigations of various uh, degrees of importance and volume. This is the only instance in which a record of such an investigation has been withdrawn from me after I have been asked to review it and I have not been given an opportunity to complete my advice to the convening authority. As you know, it's a, a voluminous document. And one of the things that uh, I initially had difficulty with, and still do, is the fact that the very first statement of fact that the court arrived at and presented was this. Available evidence combines to indicate the attack on liberty on 8 June was in fact a case of mistaken identity. Now that is the sort of thing in this record that I found great difficulty in supporting from the evidence that was included. I'm convinced that it was withdrawn from me in this instance because of my statement to Captain Boston that I was having serious problems with the evidence that was available to support the statement's fact. In the subsequent cover-up, the Israelis maintained that they thought the Liberty was the small Egyptian freighter, the Al-Qusair. This is not credible. Not only was the Liberty flying a large American flag, but it was five times as large as the Al-Qusair, and its profile was unique. It bore no resemblance whatsoever to the Egyptian ship. Tordello was the deputy director at the time of the attack. Tordello, when he received the copy of the, uh, the Israeli uh, mistake explanation, wrote across the top of it a nice whitewash. He didn't believe it at all. And he later wrote another memorandum for the record indicating that uh, he thought that uh, the most likely explanation was that uh, the Israelis attacked the Liberty because uh, they didn't want the Liberty to hear what was going on in the Sinai. Um, and this is the highest professional at NSA. Uh, in addition, the, the uh, director of NSA uh, at the time, Marshall Carter, um, told me that uh, he thought it was deliberate. In addition to that, he was very uh, offended in another memorandum he wrote that um, it appeared that the uh, Johnson administration wanted to cover up the whole thing. They actually wanted to sink the ship so that Israel wouldn't be embarrassed. Admiral Kidd, uh, when he came aboard our ship to interview the survivors, uh, he got us in small groups, three or four or five sailors, and he would ask us questions. The first thing he did is uh, he took off these stars, laid them on the table, and said, listen, open up to me and talk to me just like her. I'm just, one of, just like you, one of you. So we did. We trusted him. We opened up with our hearts. We told him exactly the way we felt what happened, what we saw, and when that was done, he put his stars back on, on his lapel, and he 
ordered us not to say anything to anybody, our families, friends, shipmates, anyone. If we did, we faced the possibility of a court-martial, penitentiary, or worse. And everyone knew what worse meant. Actually, he scared the death out of me. I didn't talk about the attack to anyone for almost 20 years. Not knowing why they did this and what, not having our government back us then and now. It's, it's an open sore. It's, uh, it's festering uh, to this day. It's not going away. I think it's important that we do have an investigation. I, I would never give up on that until I'm too old to come to these things. It needs to be done. And Pete Buecher from the Pueblo said he wouldn't even have gone if he could have known what really happened to us. All he knew was some piddly little thing he heard about on the news. In late 1991, Dwight Porter, who was ambassador to Lebanon during the 1967 war, told columnist Evans and Novak that immediately after the attack on the Liberty, the CIA station chief handed him intercepted messages between the Israeli war room and their planes. The pilots were given orders to attack the ship, and they replied immediately that it was an American ship. The Israeli headquarters responded, you have your orders, attack the ship. The pilots tried once again, but it's an American ship. We can see its flag. And headquarters insisted, you have your orders, attack it. And attack it they did, and the consequences are well known. So one of the things I found out was that uh, that had never been discovered before uh, was the fact that at the time the Liberty was attacked, the NSA also had an eavesdropping plane flying high above the scene of the action. It was an EC-121, and uh, during the entire course of the war, the U.S. Uh, had uh, eavesdropping planes going over the um, area, collecting signals, eavesdropping on what was going on below. And this plane was uh, flying right over the scene of the attack, and I talked to two of the crew members of the plane, and both of them agreed that the, what they heard were comments from both the pilots and the torpedo boat uh, uh, personnel uh, mentioning the U.S. flag. Uh, now that flies in the face of what the Israeli explanation says. The Israeli explanation says nobody on either the plane or the ships ever saw a U.S. flag. Evans and Novak got further confirmation of the Israeli attack from an American-born Israeli major, Seth Mitz, who was in the Israeli war room at the time of the attack. He told the reporters, quote, Everyone felt that it was an American ship and that it was the Liberty. There were comments about the markings, about the flag. Everybody in the room was convinced it was an American ship, unquote. Mintz told Evans and Novak that the Israelis were guilty of an outrage. True. But the American suppression of the truth was an equal outrage. Well, at the time, the Liberty was off the coast of the Sinai, off the coast of uh, uh, where El Arish was on the uh, Sinai Peninsula. Um, according to Israeli uh, military historians uh, who, who wrote reports of it at the time, uh, and other eyewitnesses, the uh, Israeli military was uh, killing prisoners, Egyptian prisoners, uh, committing war crimes, uh, desperate acts of, uh, of uh, war crimes in order to 
uh, so they wouldn't have to transport the prisoners because they had no place to put the prisoners. They decided to take the most expedient method and, and just kill them. If the planes dispatched by the Saratoga had continued to the rescue, the Israelis would have been driven off. But Washington took the Israelis at their word. They said they had recognized their error and they apologized. And the attack had already stopped, they said. But they were lying. The attack continued for another hour and 20 minutes, during which 25 more American sailors died and 110 more were wounded. All would have been spared if the American planes sent to help them had not been recalled by Washington. The point was the attack did take place. There were a lot of reasons that the Israelis would have wanted to hide things from the U.S. And that's why there is a need for investigation. Um, I mean, you're not going to take the, the word of somebody who was uh, the principal person who caused it. Uh, let's be like uh, taking the word of a defendant in a, uh, in a, in a shooting. Every one of the thousand odd clashes between Syria and Israel between 
they put me into a ward with 12 to 13 other patients and within 30 minutes they removed me from that ward and put me into a single room. I noticed that I had a name tag with Smith on and right after I noticed that an officer came in and told me that from now on my name is Smith, I was never on the Liberty and I was never ever to talk about it to anyone. I still have 53 pieces of shrapnel in me today. Never before has the U.S. Navy ignored eyewitness testimony of American military to accept on faith the story told by their attackers. Certain entries in the ship's log of June 8th have raised serious questions. There, nobody knew who was wounded or how severely. This had not been established until days after reaching Malta. The log also minimized the duration of the attack by over an hour and a half, conveniently fitting the Israeli version. It then documented the number of wounded, not as the actual 172, but at the widely published media figure of 75. There should be a congressional committee, both Senate and House, to examine all the data available. And it's, it's getting late to do this because Mike McGonagall, God bless his soul, is gone. I know that Bill was in on board the USS Liberty and the ship was off the coast at Gaza Strip, as I recall. And yet, our government printed, put it in writing, in a United States Senate book of Congressional Medal of Honor recipients that he received his medal for action in Vietnam. Now, to me, that is one of the worst cover-ups in American history. How low can our government go? And it's something that I'd like to see totally investigated and a, a closure of this issue because I think President Johnson was the villain on it. I think he recalled the people that were to defend the ship. I have never accepted the Israeli explanation, and so far as I'm concerned, the affair of the USS Liberty remains a scar on the relations between Israel and the United States. Things like this don't happen. Things are caused to happen. There must be some reason, some reason why more is not known. There must be some reason why we didn't react more deliberately, more directly, more positively, as we have reacted many times in our history before and since. As a Marine, I'm proud to say that three members of the Liberty crew were Marines. Two of them died that day, but Bryce Lockwood was decorated for saving sailors' lives. And Bill McGonigal, the skipper of the Liberty, was awarded the Medal of Honor for action above and beyond the call of duty. And I firmly believe after review of the, of the documentation of this film that an in-depth honest investigation, inquiry into what really happened that day is owed to the members of the crew, their family, and all Americans. We need to take some very serious efforts to uh, bring out the full story. And on that basis, I would certainly recommend that we pursue this with diligence. We go to the Congress and, uh, and urge them to conduct a a formal, complete uh, investigation to get the full story about our, the loss of our great ship, the Liberty. In the case of the Liberty, this is the first time, to my knowledge, 
where a United States warship has been attacked without warning and uh, no action whatever was taken to investigate this situation on the part of the Congress. I have urged this over and over again, and I still think that the attack on the Liberty warrants a full-fledged uh, investigation by the Congress of the United States. Those murdered that day must not have died in vain. The plea for justice by the Navy's most decorated crew should forever haunt us. Americans must never forget this second day of infamy and our own unbalanced foreign policy in the Middle East that precipitated it. show host Terry Anderson, known from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles for articulating the popular rage, sat down with Californians for Population Stabilization to discuss the impact illegal immigration has had on black Americans. Anderson, who grew up in South Central Los Angeles and lives there still today, says that blacks in particular have suffered at job sites and in classrooms as a result of explosive illegal immigration. As he likes to say, if you ain't mad, you ain't paying attention. The new threat in this new millennium is politicians, mostly Democrats, but some of these rotten bastards happen to be Republicans also, but mostly Democrats, who are willing to not only look the other way, but are taking a proactive stance in making sure that the laws are not enforced under any circumstances. One of the most vile, heinous, anti-American representations of the new lawlessness is Speaker of the House, Representative Nancy Pelosi. She is two accidents away from being the President of the United States, and recently she said that the enforcement of our current immigration laws are, quote, un-American, unquote. Unbelievable. Uh, I've lived in South Central L.A. my whole life. Uh, I saw the deterioration due to the illegal alien invasion. And one day I started listening to talk radio, and it happened to be George Putnam, who we all know. And uh, I kind of thought I was the only person involved in this. Well, not involved. I was the only person who felt this way. Thought I was by myself, and I heard people call his show just as angry as I was. And I got more involved in talk radio. I, I looked around the neighborhood. I saw the, the, the denseness. Ten, twenty people living in a two-bedroom house. Four and five cars at each house. Uh, corn growing in the front yard. Chickens, goats in yards. This is all the stuff we never had when I was growing up there in the 50s and 60s. And all of a sudden we had it. I knew something was wrong. And then I got kind of uh, aware of things when I saw the amnesty of 1986. I said, I was a very non-political guy. But even as non-political as I was, I said, this ain't going to work. Because if they do this, more will come. And that's what happened. Very slow in the 50s, almost non-existent. Uh, in the 60s, it began to change basically from a white culture to a black culture. 
And then all of a sudden, in the late 70s, early 80s, it started to change to an, what I thought at that time was an immigrant culture. I later found out it was illegal aliens. And then it became very fast-paced. From, I would say, 85 until the present, present, it has just been unbelievably fast. Well, right now, if you're black in South Central LA, you can't get work. I'm not, there are people working. But if you go to McDonald's, you're a 15, 16-year-old kid, you go to McDonald's for an after-school job, weekend job, summer job, they want you to be bilingual. Bilingual to flip a hamburger, okay? Are there some black kids working in South Central in McDonald's and Jack in the Box? Yes, there are, but the majority are not. You will go into these places now that used to be all black kids working there are now all Hispanics with the one token black kid in there. Uh, construction work, non-existent for blacks, non-existent. I remember when they built the Magic Johnson Theater uh, owned by Sony and Magic Johnson. Uh, it was an all-white crew building this movie theater in the Crenshaw Mall. Black construction workers got very angry, picketed, went there and said, we want at least 50% of these jobs, which was correct. And they got 50% of the jobs. Now, you've got all these black construction workers out of jobs with no work, and every construction site now is all Hispanic, mostly illegal alien, and no black politician is saying a word. Even the janitors are becoming non-existent blacks. The only place that I've seen black folks still have a strong foothold, and that's slipping away, school janitors, LA Unified, okay, and bus drivers, LA Unified bus drivers, that Unified School District. That's the only place I still see a lot of blacks working. And the, the ticket agency to write your parking tickets is still predominantly black. Every other aspect of, of, of labor in South Central LA is now Hispanic. Well, you know, when it was whitey, you want half of his. But when it's another, and I hate this word, but I'll use it because you asked me. When it's another minority, unquote, then it's okay. As long as the minority's getting to work, black folks say, well, it's okay. And I say black folks, I mean black leaders. The black rank and file, you talk to them in the grocery store, you go to Pep Boys and talk to them, you go to the bank and talk to them, they will tell you they're fed up with this invasion. But the leaders will not let the public know that. There's two reasons why the, the, the black construction workers won't pick it. Number one, it's futile now, okay? They just know there's just no way they're going to get a job anyway. The other reason is the, 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 the numbers have been so decimated. We've been diluted now. A lot of blacks have moved out of that area. They've moved out to Lancaster, uh, uh, Palmdale, Moreno Valley. They've also moved back down south where the, where the parents got a plot of land or something, you know, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. They moved down there. So the numbers are down now, so they don't have any strength. The other thing is the third reason. The third reason is because of stigma. They're afraid of being labeled a racist. They, they are scared to death of that word. And they figure if they speak up, they're going to be labeled. Whenever you hear a black person speak up on this invasion issue, they'll always do a disclaimer first. I, I, I'm not against anybody. I like everybody. I love everybody. But it's always that way. They always do the disclaimer first, and then they say what's on their mind. I was at a, an event that, that Bernard Parks was there at the time. He was a what well, he's city councilman now. He's city councilman then. Yeah. He, he's in the eighth district, okay, which is very near where I live. There are construction projects in the same block where his office is that are all Hispanic, and he doesn't say one word about it. He told us at the meeting that night over in West LA that he. He's, he, he was very adamant that 90% of construction workers in the city, not county, city of Los Angeles, were white. And everybody in this meeting asked him, what are you smoking? Yeah. Because, you know, they wanted some.
And where, where is this at? Because, number one, there are zero white construction workers in L.A., and it just, just doesn't happen. Secondly, the, 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 to even say that about the county would have been ridiculous, but the city is just really, really stupid. And he actually said that that night, and everybody just laughed out loud. He's, he's an idiot. He really is. I have a theory, okay, and I believe it's correct, and I've done a lot of study on this. I've been to Washington, D.C., talked to all of them. It started out as get whitey, okay? Started out as get whitey. We're going to bring in these other, here's this word again, it keeps popping up. We're going to bring in this other group of minorities who are going to dilute whitey's power, okay? They're going to dilute Whitey's power. And then as the group started coming in, it became a tide that couldn't be reversed. So then it became, well, let's be nice to them, and maybe they'll vote for us. Well, they did in some cases, until they got one of their own to, to run for office. When I say one of their own, I'm not knocking all Hispanic Americans, because I love Hispanic Americans. I'm saying that a lot of Hispanic Americans are race-based, just as Maxine Water, Waters and Diane Watson and Jackson Lee and the rest are race-based. They believe in black only. Well, these Hispanic leaders believe in the same thing, and they side with illegal aliens. Our problem being black, we don't have any illegal aliens to side with that's going to give us power. But the Hispanics do. And then it became with the Black Caucus, well, wow, look what's happening. But if we speak up now, we'll sound like the white Republicans, so we better not. So it went from get whitey to maybe they'll vote for us to, wow, the water's boiling. Jamil Shaw is a very tragic case. We've got other cases, uh, Highland Park, where three or four blacks were killed just for being black. Uh, Canoga Park, where the LAPD gave a vocal warning to black folks, do not go to Canoga Park because your life could be in danger. Harbor City, man was walking his daughter to the grocery store one evening, a Mexican guy shot him in the back because he was black. The, the young girl, 204th Street, was killed because she was black. My point is this, there are sections of Los Angeles where blacks cannot go. If a black person goes to East L.A. and tries to buy a house, they will kill him. They will burn him out. It is, it's happened. But there's Hispanics living in all the previous black projects, the Jordan Downs, Nickerson Gardens, Imperial Courts, Pueblo del Rio, all of these projects, housing projects, that were once 100% black now are 50-50, and no Hispanic has been attacked because he was Hispanic. My point is there's a place where we can't go, but there's no place they can't go. What do you attribute the uh, reluctance of the Latino leadership in the city of Los Angeles up to and including Mayor Villarosa to not speak more candidly and more aggressively about this issue? Very simple. They don't have to. Why would they speak up? They're winning. Their numbers are taking over. They're, they're going to be the 80% Los Angeles someday. Uh, they're taking over. Why would they speak up on our behalf? There's no reason to. They don't need us anymore. Villaraigosa can get elected without us now. I, I go out into the community. Wherever I'm at, I, I ask questions. I don't tell them who I am. And that's the thing about being on radio. People don't really know what you look like. But I go out into the black community, and I talk all the time to people. And I, you know, I may be in line somewhere. I say, man, what do you think about so-and-so and so-and-so? Man, they'll turn around and say, man, I thought I was the only one. They all say the very same thing. We're in bad shape in this city. This used to be a uh, multicultural city. It no longer is. There's no diversity in Los Angeles City anymore. And those same black people will tell you that they've got a relative who can't get a job. They've got a neighbor who plays loud mariachi music. They've got a neighbor who grows corn in his front yard. They'll tell you about their child in school who's in bilingual education and not learning a damn thing. They, they'll tell you all of this, every one of them. But if you ask them to stand up and come to a rally, they won't do it because they're afraid. I go to these churches. These churches have uh, town hall meetings. And I've been to a lot of these town hall meetings. 
every time they have them, they'll bring in Tony Mohammed and uh, Earl Ofari Hutchinson and some of these other, quote, black leaders, unquote, self-appointed black leaders. They'll bring them in, and they are the only ones who take the pro-illegal alien position. And sometimes the minister of the church will. You know, that's about the money in the plate. But the black constituency that comes to these meetings is always 95 to 99% in favor of deportation of every one of them. And it's not just the black kids. No, no. The, Ameri the American Hispanics who don't speak Spanish, Chicago. oh, they're, they're in trouble too. You know, they, they, com they complain. They call this radio show. They come in here and, and, and talk to me. I get emails from them all the time. The, the problem with the education system is a few years ago, we were closing schools in this, in this city because of under-enrollment, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Population had slowed down. They were combining schools, and every once in a while they would close one. We just built... 165 new schools, 165 new schools. They were after 165,000 classroom seats, okay? All for what? It wasn't for the American kids. Americans aren't having a lot more kids. These were for an influx of people new to this country who happened to be Hispanic, happened not to speak any English, and happened to be in the country illegally. That's what happened. Or the, the, the illegal aliens came here and had babies here. My great-grandfather. My great-grandfather was a slave in the state of Louisiana. Obviously, I never met him. But the ancestry handed down to me by those who came before me, my aunts and uncles and my father, and they all told me the stories of what it was like because it was passed on to them. And one of the greatest moments in our history was the day we were emancipated. Uh, we were emancipated with the Civil War, but we still had to have, a, uh, we had to have something passed that said officially, we were no longer property, we were now citizens, and anything born to us was citizens. That was written for my ancestors, okay. Having said that, we've got a new misinterpretation of it that everybody from the world has used to come here and have babies and make them American citizens. It is wrong, it is a misinterpretation, and it angers me personally because it was written for my ancestors and now it's being misused and therefore used against me. I'm suffering from it now because of the influx of so many people and their, and their progeny that they have once they get here. I'm suffering from that. My kids and my grandkids are going to suffer because they took an amendment meant for us and turned it around against us. That's outrageous. The media basically at large won't touch this issue as, as in any form. And when they do, it's always pro-illegal alien. When they do touch it, as far as consequences to other people, it's alleged that this is hurting black folks. It's alleged that this did this. It's alleged that they're costing us tax dollars. It's never a fact that it's happening, even though they know it's a fact. The only avenue of media uh, where we have a fair shake is talk radio, conservative talk radio. And even that sucks sometimes. Hannity, one of the most powerful people in this country who could really do us a lot of good on this issue, and a guy that I would like to have a beer with. I think he's a nice guy. But Hannity sucks on this issue. All he talks about is the border, the border, the border, the border. There's more to the border. When's he going to do our show on what's happening to these communities, these kids that are getting murdered by illegal aliens, the fact that we can't get jobs, the fact that teenagers have to speak Spanish to flip a hamburger. Where's the Hannity show on that? Where's even a segment on that on his, radio, on his television program? You won't find it. O'Reilly, here's another part guy who, who tells us we're going to have to amnesty this 20, 25 million people. What is that? that? These are lawbreakers, and you're saying, well, we have to amnesty them. We can't round them all up. We don't have to round them up. Make enough, enough F 
effort to enforce the laws on the books. You make it where they can't educate, 